0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now, your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, November the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. David Williams, he's produced the program. Let's get going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air. 709 273 5211. Elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 86 26. So, a quick check in on the Newfoundland Growlers on the road down Utah taking on the Grizzlies. They dropped the first two, including a 6 3 loss on Saturday night. Bounced back yesterday to get their second road win of the season with a 2 0 victory. So, good news there. And Dawson Mercer, his first multi point game of the season. Golden assist on Saturday night. So, hopefully, he's heating up. And I've been checking in on Zach Dean. He's playing for the Springfield Thunderbirds in the American Hockey League. But off to a bit of a sluggish start, finally scored his first professional goal, so he's got three points in 16 games. Of course, he was the 30th overall pick by the uh, Vegas Golden Knights back in 2021, so hopefully this puts him on a bit of a heat or two, so go get him, Zach. All right, uh, on that front, who doesn't like a good Gordie Howe stat? And this one's actually fascinating. It was on this day in 1960 and in 1961 that NHL legend Gordie Howe set two monumental milestones. He became the first player ever to score 1,000 points in 1960, a year later on the same date, First player to ever play in a 1,000 games. So it's quite a coincidence. Pretty good stuff. Uh, congratulations to all of our athletes representing the country at the Parapan Games in Brazil. Some 150 athletes, I believe, with a 52 medal haul. Not bad. Put them sixth overall uh, amongst the uh, 21 nations competing in the Parapan games and big thanks to everyone who supported Dial-A-Carol yesterday. It's always a fun afternoon, a great annual tradition. The money's raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $11,500 and still counting, as you heard Brian Mador mention. So that's all in support of the VOCM Cares Foundation. So includes all the programs and projects like the Happy Tree, for instance, making those donations to the Salvation Army because we know just how many people are in need of a little leg up or a boost this holiday season. So Dial-A-Carol was a smash hit. So thanks to everyone who made a, a pledge yesterday and hopefully you got your favorite car on the air. Okay, so yesterday it was an absolutely ideal weather day for a parade. So, of course, there'll be lots of people disappointed that there was a decision made very close to parade time to postpone and move the parade to next Saturday, December 3rd, beginning at 12 noon. Hopefully, the folks who were in attendance and those who were participating on the floats or the dancers or the cheerleaders and Santa, hopefully, they're all going to be able to participate next weekend. Now, of course, this all came as a result of an armed standoff on Brazel Street. Three people have been arrested. No additional details at this moment in time, were are told by uh, Constable James Cadigan. More details will be revealed in the days to come. But if you stand back and, you know, you back out the parade postponement and what have you, instances like that are becoming far too common. I mean, there are certain pockets of the city and other parts of the province, obviously, where we've got ourselves a major league problem so without any real details associated here and we'll I guess we'll find out but whatever the root cause is and we know that there's guns involved it's a problem that you know some people residents of uh, areas like Brazil street I'm sure if you're one of those Regular Joes and Janes just trying to get along, getting up going to work, trying to pay the bills and feed the kids, and this is going on in and around where you live. I'm sure it's absolutely terrifying for folks in those areas. But anyway, you want to take, a, take it on, we can do it. Oh, and with the parade, as uh, so I heard Galen Lambert say with downtown St. John's, it's the largest food drive in the province. So they collect some 20,000 pounds annually. So also, if you're going to attend, please make sure you bring a, a non-perishable along next Sunday afternoon 12 p.m. in the downtown core all right so last week we saw the Canada EU summit come and go there's never or generally speaking there's not usually some real substantive issues that have been settled and solved and contracts put forward but we're told is substantially about this province okay so a few things Clean energy, so we've talked an awful lot about wind to hydrogen to ammonia and export to markets like Germany with the MOU side with that country. We don't know if they're going to expand to other markets. Very likely they will. Now, with the pro-wind project rally on the west coast over the weekend, so we're going to probably hear more and more as we lead up to the deadline for public consultation and then consequently the next decision gate by the province. But I wonder how this complicates it. There was a federal court ruling in Germany last week that put close to 20 billion euros of funding for the hydrogen economy at risk. The judge deemed it to be unconstitutional. So what they were talking about was there was a want to reallocate some 60 billion euro of unused debt from the COVID-19 pandemic support measures to put in their climate and transformation fund. So when the judge calls it unconstitutional, here's a few more details. As a result, the German finance minister, Christian Linder, blocked all non-committed financing from the $60 billion pot with the exception of subsidies for energy efficiency and renewable energy measures in buildings." What does that mean? Was the country of Germany going to buy green hydrogen and sell it to their customers at a subsidized rate? I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the implications are here, but this does put some of their measures in Germany on pause regarding hydrogen. Here's some of the other big numbers. The 60 billion euros were part of a uh, overall budget of $211.8 billion for 2024-2027. 18.6 billion euros had been earmarked for building out the hydrogen industry, $3.8 billion out allocated to the sector in 24 and the remainder over the next 3 years. Germany wants to have 10 gigawatts of electrolyzer capacity installed by 2030 in addition to being a customer of ours. So does that put some of that concern regarding price point for the end consumer and the thirst for this pro- this type of energy from our province to the country of Germany? I've sent along some emails to just I tried to look up a couple of people who were of note involved in this to see if they can break it down any further as to whether or not any of that money would, as I mentioned, be used to purchase the green hydrogen and sell it at a manageable rate for their customers, consumers, residents. So. That is a, I think that's just an additional piece of info. We're going to have to see how it's considered by proponents like Mr. Risley and others. But there's something to consider. Okay. So it's a lot about, you know, innovation and technology and trade in the middle class and all the notable headline grabbers. And then, of course, for people in this province will also be the conversation regarding, yes, you got it, SEALs. So... There's nothing changed. So the uh, European Union is not going to lift the ban on most seal products being exported from us to them. And, you know, there's where they talk about things like the exemptions and the carve-outs. There's still a market for seals that come from indigenous hunts. Uh, The European Commissioner says that seems to be working well. But no, not really. You know, it's one of those things I kind of dislike when people throw around the virtue signal. And good, it's absolutely part of the culture, tra- tradition, and revenue for indigenous peoples involved in those seal hunts. But when we're talking about humane, regulated harvest that is exactly what we have in this modern day history for seal uh, seal hunts, the seal didn't know whether or not an indigenous person or not took the seal. so. That's really just one of those where they like to rest on their laurels and think that that's part of the solution. Seemingly unwilling to listen to updated, modern, accurate information regarding what the SEAL population is here, and what it means for biodiversity, and yes, with trade. So nothing's changed on that front. For some people, they just roll their eyes and say, look, that conversation is over. But when we look at the fact that when the Cod moratorium was brought in, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.7 million SEALs, now upwards of 8 million SEALs, and where's the cod stock? Nowhere near the recovered levels that we thought would be achieved so there's some direct relationship obviously there but if that's of import or note to you Let's talk about it. All right, so while we look to 2041 and more information regarding renegotiating or redress on the Upper uh, the Upper Churchill Hydro Project, it was on this date in 2006 that Quebec was declared a nation within a unified Canada after the Canadian Parliament passed Prime Minister Harper's tabled motion of declaration in 2006. There was only like 16 members of Parliament that voted against it, so we all understand the strained relationship between the two provinces. But... That really did change the way that the province of Quebec was viewed by other Canadians, quite likely. So back in 2006, that was the change. Okay, how are we doing out there, Dave? Let's get a few calls going. So, I've heard from a couple of people who were employed by Kruger's operations at the Cornerbrook Pulp and Paper Mill, the last newsprint mill in the province. We all know about the shutdown for a week. There have been shuts down, shutdowns in the past. You know, we're told not to press the panic button and I have no interest in doing that. But the couple of workers that I heard from, they're panicking. So it's one thing for that to be one of the economic linchpins on the west coast with some 300 jobs, 300 full-time employed employees at that mill. And then, you know, the province has decided not to trigger a default mechanism regarding the outstanding loan, but it's worth putting it back out there. And I just mentioned Quebec. So while Kruger was investing heavily, we're told, in their Quebec-based operations, maybe just leaned on the provincial government's coffers a little bit more here than they have with their other operations. So you know the deal. There was a $110 million loan extended to them. There's only ever been three payments made on it. They were supposed to be making uh, quarterly payments of the tune of one point eight five million million, First payment due the 31st, uh, 2019, March 31st, 2019. supposed to be paid off in about a decade for now. Now the outstanding balance is $117.2 million. In addition to that outstanding loan balance, there was some $70 million uh, invested into that mill in 2010 for a variety of initiatives and upgrades. Upgrades In 2017, the province helped backfill some $88 million, led to the company's pension plan. So while may there be Mayor Jim Parsons or others on this file that are saying, you know, let's not worry yet as they try to figure out the market, there's never been any big move towards diversifying away from newsprint, other than, uh, unlike what they did in the province of Quebec, exactly that, to recognize where the newsprint industry is going and diversify to keep it viable and profitable for the long term. So the couple of people that I spoke to, they might not be in full panic mode, but they're certainly pretty jittery on this particular file, and that's easy to understand. Okay. So still trying to wrap my mind around this whole mortgage charter. So it's non-binding, it's not enforceable by law, and the Minister of Finance, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland, speaking quite optimistically and encouraging tones regarding the fact that she thinks the financial institutions, the banks, the lenders, will quote-unquote play along, right? So I don't know how we're supposed to think that that's going to happen. So there's some 3 million mortgages in the country that are up for renewal within the next 18 months. We know not the benchmark interest rate of 5% from the Bank of Canada, nobody gets mortgages or any nobody can borrow at that particular rate. So yes, if your bank is going to be willing to accommodate some of the allowances in this mortgage, great. So to extend amortization periods, waive some fees, uh, do waive the stress test if you move from one lender to another, all very, very helpful. But we've seen what these interest rate hikes have meant to people's individual mortgages. They have skyrocketed. So while we look at the rent averages across the country, while we look at mortgage renewals, now mortgage defaults in this country are very, very low. There's a, a, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5.2 or 3 million mortgages in play th- in arrears, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 8,400. So we do very well on that front. It's like 0.16% of, of mortgages that are in default. Pardon me, not in arrears. Arrears if you haven't paid in three months. So are the banks going to play along with this? You know, I suppose in an effort, they'll have to do the calculations. If you lose a customer or a client because they don't, uh, they're unable to pay their new mortgage, which could increase some 30, 40%, then The bankruptcy kicks in or the insolvency and all of a sudden you had someone making payments and was a customer or a client of yours and now they're gone by the wayside because the bank was unable or unwilling to accommodate some of these allowances. And of course the banks are not struggling. That's one industry where they are not under any financial pressures at all. They're doing extraordinarily well, but will people play along? All right, I know there's a rally today. Social work students and I believe their professors are rallying about what they see as inaction or a lack of understanding, possibly, the plight that the folks who are living in this tent city are facing. So there has been big housing announcements, and we know, whether it be federally, provincially, municipally, you know, applying to the Housing Accelerator Fund, But that's a down the road component to trying to figure out the housing issue. And we can throw around crisis all we want, but oftentimes it's absolutely the appropriate word. So this is a housing crisis. We have a food crisis. I mean, I heard a story in an interview this morning with Courtney Barber. She runs, or she's part of the team that runs the Facebook group, Neighbors in Need. People reaching out just through that medium. And then we look at food bank numbers and housing concerns. It's just. Extraordinary how difficult times are for so many people. So, that's a big cost of living envelope that we can hop in and talk about if you are so inclined. And I see that the Black Friday sales number, retail sales numbers are down across the country. No shock there. As if I saw someone say on Twitter, it's not as if we're starving to death. So, shopping numbers of concern in the retail sector. Probably some big deals out there again today Cyber Monday. You know, it's amazing marketing where they tag these. Enticing enticing tags to things like Cyber Monday, Black Friday. If you're participating, good luck. Watch your credit card. All right, a couple of quickies before we get to you. So there's another round of public consultations coming now regarding foreign interference into our elections. And you've heard the story many, many times. They went through it at one point, and they're talking about uh, foreign registry. So people think that's probably not going far enough. And even talking about how CSIS is structured, and maybe some uh, more accommodations could be made. Now by law, CSIS is unable to share any of their information outside of the federal government ranks. So there's another round of consultations coming here. You know. It's not really surprising because the headline churn happens very, very quickly, an issue that was paramount, and politicians were going haywire over foreign interference, and so they should, but then the things change, we go to political slogans versus digging in and figuring this out. So there's another round of consultations that will end on the 2nd of February, so if you are interested in it, and one of the accommodations, interestingly, we're just talking about shopping, the Business Council of Canada has put forward recommendations hoping that ceases when they know that one of these or businesses is going to be targeted that working with ceases to get some guidance and a heads up before it's too late so it's one thing for the intelligence agency to know that there's a pending problem quite another to work with those who are being identified for foreign interference and it's a big deal beyond politics inside the world of business it absolutely is one of the concerns that's out there but if you're interested in being part of the public consultations you can do exactly that a couple of lighthearted ones before we get to you this acute a cute story so there's a Russian immigrant who had moved to Ukraine to go to university and fell in love. So Anvar Laffey, who works at the Mary Browns in Gander, married Alexandra Frolova, surrounded by co-workers. So married at Mary Browns. Congratulations to the happy couple. Interesting place to do it. They had the store manager, I think her name's Tracy Janes, to be the witness. And of course, the customers <laughs> and the other co-workers of the couple got to watch their nuptials At the chicken restaurant. How about that? And this one is important. We talk about this sometimes, maybe not often enough. Where did I put it? Where did I put it? Okay. So there was a private member's motion made in Parliament by Calgary MP. He's a conservative MP, Len Weber. It was called Bill C-210. What it said was, in the province of Ontario and in Nunavut, on your tax form, there would be a box to check if you wanted to become an organ donor and it worked some two point four five million additional Canadians are now on the registry to be organ and tissue donors and there's mechanisms in place for instance if you move from province to province because your next tax return will ensure that you're registered with the appropriate registry so some 90% of Canadians are in support of and are willing to be an organ donor but the fact of the matter is only 25% Canadians have signed up to do exactly that in this province we know what we have to do used to be on your driver's license now you have to go through MCP and then importantly have that conversation with your family you want to be an organ and tissue donor so the move now is to try to make this the reality for the entire country and it just makes sense when it passed uh, unanimously in parliament then let's go so whoever has to be involved in making sure that that is a go to and the easy mechanism, just you know, on your tax return. Check a box would you like to be an organ donor? Yep. Now, 2.45 additional million Canadians are now organ donors because of this very intuitive private members bill. So, well done to Calgary MP Len Weber. That's a great idea. Let's hope it comes to pass from coast to coast to coast. We're on Twitter. For VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Our email address is VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Mike, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning, Mike.
2: Patty, I was very disturbed with Tom Osborne the weekend on his speech or his press release, whatever you want to call it. On this virtual care, I mean to say, I was wondering before if he was involved and how far he was involved into the deal with the Commerce Group and couldn't get no good out of him or whatever over the years. But uh, there's no trouble to see now that he is a very strong supporter of the... Compass Group and and this Medicare thing of what he's talking about.
1: Well, I mean, I asked the minister directly about the procurement process and his words in to paraphrase is that as the minister of health community services he's not directly involved in assessing the uh, replies to an RFP and eventually who gets the bid. So that's what the minister's office
0: will tell you.
2: No, he's not directly involved. I said he is a supporter of it. There's a big difference, but the thing is is that they wouldn't be getting away with it if the minister was against it. And the minister should be speaking out against it, but he's supporting it. Oh, they are here now. They brought in this syndicate, an international syndicate, that is very questionable onto their things. They're known for providing uh, funds to people for bribery, and all this stuff, they move into a, an area, they take it over if you're weak or not good at the jobs and that and whatever. And they use it by bribery and that and whatever, and they get out whatever money they can.
1: Mike, where are you getting stories about the Compass Group and bribery and what have you? So where does that come from?
2: It comes from worldwide uh, internet information. Anybody can go on there and get it. Uh, going onto corporate watchdogs, from over in England about the scandals involving the Compass Group. They're a worldwide uh, organization, one of the biggest in the world, fifth largest. They're here now, they're taking every cent that they can out of Newfoundland, which is our healthcare dollars. They're even taking uh, money from donations and everything else. The thing is, uh, is that they're going to bankrupt our healthcare system. And this is a blatant example of it. They don't care. They're doing it now right up in front. They've got so much power into this government. they got over 40 employees in there. They're making these decisions to spend our money. Then they're giving it all to people who are affiliated with it. There's nobody else can buy or sell anything to government or get involved into it other than these people make money on it. And it's time for this to stop. And, the, and I know now that Tom Osborne is involved into it and high levels of government. Now, where the premier is, he imported, he imported it. But, I mean, say, he can put...
1: He inherited in. it, is what you're trying to say.
2: Yeah, you know, and uh, like you said, but how far it goes in government of this corruption, I don't know, but it's, uh, like I said, our health care depends on it. Here they are giving millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to a bunch of billionaires over in Europe.
1: Okay, and you and I have had this conversation many times, and I just had a uh, qu- very quick Google, and it does speak to some allegations and uh, conspiracies and bribery, and you know, so 2006, Compass Group hit the headlines after allegations emerged of an illegal conspiracy to bribe a UN official to give the company contract to feed UN peacekeepers in conflict zones around the world, worth in excess of £188 million. Pounds. Uh, but what's, your, what's the connection you're trying to make with TeleDoc and Compass?
2: Uh, they're partners with Teladoc. That's the reason why Teladoc got it. They got 40 employees in our government. They just given the, they're just they given giving all the purchases, no tenders. This uh, RPF is a farce. It's a farce that the government done to Dave Diamond and them to give them the contract for, for the health care.
1: Yeah, I don't think Dave Diamond's involved in giving the contracts either. But so I looked, someone asked me via email, Mike, about, you know, when there's a discrepancy between, for instance, Medicuro's bid of $3.5 million versus Teladoc's bid of $11 million per year. You know, why? And it's a good question. We had Dr. Young on the show last week to talk about why. They're still trying to sit down with the procurement group to see how and why their bid came up short. But as a result of that, I went and had a look at uh, Teladoc's uh, investors. And in their top 10, the Compass Group was not one of them. And there's some of the the, you know, or the notable ones, BlackRock and ARK and Sutokomo, Como, Mitsui, you know, some of those big asset management companies, State Street, uh, State Street Corp, and the like Vanguard, Total Stock Market, but no Compass Group.
2: Go in on Teladoc put in Teladoc and Compass Group, and will come up there. That'll tell you that they're partners. Let's see. Like you know, this is ridiculous. It, it, it's blatant. And people are not listening, and and they're not going to hear anything until they realize it won't sink in until we've got no health care left. Here's, yeah, a couple, over the whole of here's a
1: couple. Here's a couple headlines, very quickly. That uh, with that very quick uh, Google that you recommended. Oh, yeah. So, uh, TeleDoc partners with Compass to provide in-network PCP. First partnership to extend continuum of care for telemedicine visits with cost-saving, customized referrals. TeleDoc Inc. Another one: Mental health TeleDoc consultations have a $50 copay for those enrolled in the eligible Compass Group medical plan. So they do indeed do work with Compass Group.
2: Yes, right. And the thing is, is that. There's not only this Teladoc. This Teladoc is only a tiny thing. Oh, yeah. There's all the other contracts that are doing the same thing. The Compass Group are ruling, and the government and nobody else got anything to say other than uh, what the Compass stuff says. They got 40 people in our government offices that are working for the Compass Group to make as much money as they can for Compass Group, not for this government. They're not there to benefit this government. They're there to make money for billionaires over in Europe, and they're doing a damn good job. And until Newfoundlanders realizes that something's got to be done about these people, our health care is in dire straits. They're going to put it bankrupt, and not only that, they'll take over every bit in government. Okay. Uh, there.
1: Here's another headline. February 7th, 2017. Uh, telemedicine News Roundup. American Well, well the name of that is company called American Well, announces two health system customers, Teladoc, who partners with Compass and more. So there's a big, long article that, of course, I can't read while you and I are talking, but I will. I'll just save it and send it to myself via e- email. Yeah, so they're talking mm-hmm. about clear and straight-up partnerships there, including, including Tactio Health Group, which is uh, based in Montreal, uh, a bunch of the different companies listed here in the partnership world. I'll give it another read, Mike, but I'm I'm glad you called on it this morning. This type of information is absolutely important and we'll use it in our follow-up conversations with the government on the selection of Teladoc versus Medicure or anybody else that replied to that RFP. Uh, would you like to say anything else this morning?
2: I would like to say, look, I'm a witness to the backroom businesses down in the States that Compass Group making deals with them for purchases at our expense in in order for them to get uh, other customers. I'm a witness to no tenders going out, just the Compass Group supplying parts, equipment, and everything else at huge markups. They're, they're here to take every dollar they can, and they got absolutely nothing invested. And there's high government officials involved in this bribery and that and everything else for keeping them in there. And it goes beyond Dave Diamond. Dave Diamond is the one who, say, who uh, signed the contract. Uh, Ron Johnson was the one before. And I think it was Buck signed the one before that. I've been following this for 20 years. They started it out small to take over the, over the uh, restaurant business. Now they've got everything in health care going on pretty well in this province all over. They started out with Eastern Health. Now they've gone out in Central. And unless somebody does something about it, our health care is what it's doing. When people there now sitting in... in uh, in the rooms, waiting for for services and that, for treatments. The people that are waiting for long-term, uh, long-term uh, operations and that stuff, got to wait. Why? At the same time, we're sending these hundreds of millions of dollars out. And, and Tom Osborne knows it. I told Tom Osborne about it years ago, when he was in government, before John Hickey took over. I told John Hickey about it. He did a review, and what happened to it? they hid it away they would not disclose it and there's a lot of corruption in this government and I think Tom Osborne is right at the top of it
1: Mike, I I appreciate the time Mike I'm going to take a break here now but I I do appreciate the information that uh, you just shared here on the air and via email and we'll go back to the well on this particular issue especially the relationship between or the partnership or relationship between Teladoc and the Compass Group Uh, anything else I'll give you another 30 seconds but I gotta go
2: no, the only thing that I'm saying, look, we need action on this. The so Premier Fury, do not take Tom Osborne into this, that position. Then I, I figure that uh, Premier Fury is involved into it too, because this is a blatant robbery of theft of our health care dollars that we desperately need.
1: Thanks for the call, Thank Mike. You. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. There's mouthfuls, more mouthfuls from Mike on that file. Okay, let's go ahead and take
0: a break. Don't go away. Santa Claus returns December 4th to your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four and say good morning to the Liberal member for Vancouver South. He's the minister responsible for emergency preparedness and also the president of the King's Privy Council for Canada. That's Harjit Sajjan. Good morning, Minister Sajjan. You're on the air.
3: Good morning. It's great to be here. And uh, I know I have a very long title of visiting any kind Labrador. Um, actually we just uh, spent the last couple of days on the uh, southwest coast there, um, visiting the, uh, sadly, the uh, affected areas of Fiona uh, and learning from uh, what we need to do to make things uh um, better given that we're having a lot more climate-induced disasters. Um, and, you know, what are the things that we need to change and also make sure that the, the Canadians have the uh, appropriate support for recovery?
1: So, we're talking about mitigation strategies. We're also talking about response after an emergency or a natural disaster happens. But just curiously, this might sound like a strange question, but I'm doing it anyway what exactly do we call an emergency because you know it depends on where you are and who you are and your, your lot in life so we can talk about floods and fires and hurricanes but is there anything else but well, an overlap between your department and other groups like whether or not there's an issue with an emergency regarding housing emergency regarding food and food bank usage or are you simply in the natural disaster world
3: also, no, for the, the area that I'm in is when it comes to emergencies is where, um, you know, there's special uh, specialties that's required from everything from search and rescue, fire, uh, from the security side of things, um, the health pandemic, uh, where there's, you know, there's uh, Massive uh, work that needs to be done at all levels, and coordination is required at the at the national level to making sure that uh, you know Canadians are safe. So there's a lot of safety issues uh, when it when it comes uh, around this. And in, in areas where a lot of um, high-level expertise uh, is required, and it's not just about natural uh, uh, disasters. I mean, earthquakes are obviously part of this as well, but when it comes to, as I mentioned, you know, we just had a health uh, pandemic. It could be many other things, and these are things we need to be mindful of. We can't be just looking at, uh, you know, for fire, you know, wildfires to take place and floods, but now they're having greater frequencies. Then we also had a health pandemic, but potential earthquakes. It could be other uh, type of disasters as well.
1: So, When we talk about forest fire season, we managed to dodge it for the most part here in this province without any huge fires. But if I remember the number correctly, somewhere in the neighborhood of 18.5 million hectares of uh, Canadian forest was burnt this past forest fire season. Inside of that, so what does forest fire mitigation look like? I mean, what are we actually talking about here? We know, and people will incorporate just how many fires were started by arson and how many were started by natural causes, lightning strikes or otherwise. So how do you mitigate a forest fire?
3: Well, first of all, I mean the because of the climate change, most of our um, wildfires are started by um, lightning. Um, yes, there's some from arson, and those are things that we need to be able to uh, prevent. Um, but even wildfires that are started by uh, lightning need to be mitigated. So, some of the things that we need to do is, um, uh, as you said, forest management. It has to be different, obviously, uh, different from uh, province to, uh, and to territories. It's going to be different in BC. It needs to be different here. And the provinces so will have their own plan to mitigate that. But in addition to this, uh, we have seen, uh, you know, forest fires will increase. But it's the uh, risk to uh, where people live is where uh, where we have the greatest concern. So those are areas where we need to be mindful of. And how do we, uh, the new construction of homes or build more resiliency, making sure that there's fire breaks um, uh, for uh, for communities. And even simple things like having the right type of uh, patio furniture or keeping away from the house if you live in a high prone uh, wildfire uh, area so those are just some of the mitigation things that we need to do so education to be a very strong component but because of the frequency we need to make sure that we have the appropriate response as well and the response has to be right down to the municipal level um, uh, provincial and at the federal level as well.
1: Canada's Boreal Forest uh, covers some 270 or 80 million hectares of land, is there a national strategy for mitigation measures such as cutting the windfall or the fire load, because that, that becomes the real kindling for the big forest fire. so is, is it all provincial responsibility or is there a national strategy for exactly that?
3: I mean, I would say. I mean, we want to make sure that the natural resources, um, are obviously, at the provincial level, so they each province and territory can decide uh, how to manage their own natural resources. But when it comes to the management side, I would say that uh, from the federal level, we need to look at what type of uh, science and data that we can um, provide. So, for example. Um, uh, we will be putting up satellites that will help uh, monitor and track uh, wildfires uh, in, a, in a much more different way. We can look at hotspots uh, and be able to identify and possibly um, uh, respond um, uh, to those. But different, you know, as you know, the boreal forest, you know, actually need wildfires to revive uh, themselves. Sure. And so the management piece has to be uh, different where there's a concern. Is when towns uh, and homes are at risk, right? And uh, in in if you look at you know Newfoundland and Labrador, you had wildfires, but if you look at even the Northwest Territories, you had these small towns all over the place that were at risk, and you know wind patterns have shifted. So one of the things we just need to be mindful is that we you know we were looking at wildfires before where they weren't in frequency or didn't have interface fires where they were close to close to towns so making sure that we have the right information so we can plan appropriately i think that's going to be the key to making sure that we prevent. We know that th- this is going to increase, so we have to uh, prepare for this. We need to make sure that we mitigate, to adapt, or what we do. And as, as I mentioned earlier, making sure that we um, build differently uh, as well, so that there's greater uh, fire resiliency. And in the town of West Kelowna in British, you know, my home province of British Columbia, um, and I flew over the area where you know a lot of the homes were destroyed, but some of the homes that were built fire smart uh, did survive. Um, so you know the that the the, the Uh, That type of work uh, uh, does work. Um, But municipalities also play a role in terms of what regulations we want to bring into place, uh, especially when it comes to zoning. Or the simple thing of having uh, fire breaks. If you're going to be building into a forest, we need to make sure that the homes are going to be protected in case there is a fire. Um, In many towns, when the lightning strikes and the fire starts and the wind shifts, it moves so quickly, that even the resources that you put there may not be enough to prevent uh, the the destruction of homes. And that's why those fire breaks and other mechanisms are going to be very useful.
1: So what does building a home fire safe mean? So is that a building code measure? Because if you look at a video of a home built in 1955, how long it takes for it to be engulfed in flames, versus a kitchen or a living room of a home built this year, it's vastly different. So does fire safe have a direct relationship with the building code?
3: um uh, y- y- yes and no um, um of course um you know I mean, I leave it to the municipalities to look at what type of building codes they need to to bring in. And for the most part, if you share the information with Canadians and they're the risk, you know they will make a uh, make a choice uh, in terms of uh, making sure that's fire smart. So I'll give you a very simple example: um, shingle roofs versus tile roofs. Right? So Obviously, a shingle roof is going to burn very quickly, and there, and uh, even one home in a neighborhood with a shingle roof can uh, can mean the difference between the whole neighborhood. Be uh, uh, catching catching on fire, so it's just buying enough time to make uh, so that uh, when the resources do arrive, they can put out those uh, type of fires. If the fire moves so quickly, and the house is like kindling, obviously it's going going to burn. So for the most part you know um, i would say is if we leave it to the municipality to make those uh, d- those type of decisions but but at the same time Canadians you know are um, you know are making their own choices on what the, what they need to do in the town of Lytton, and uh, where uh, sadly BC's had a lot of wildfires so where the whole town was wiped out you know, as we as the federal government have put in incentive, uh, financial incentive for people to rebuild uh, their homes in a fire-smart way. So we are, uh, you know, uh, making sure that we incentivize this as well.
1: Inside the envelope of emergency preparedness, I know you're responsible for the national public alerting system, which we had one last week or the week before. Also, communications interoperability, chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear and explosives resilience, which all have a direct relationship with to the fact that many emergencies can indeed be caused. Uh, caused by cyber lack of cybersecurity. So, is your department involved there? Because whether it be you know a, a hacker getting into a nuclear facility or on the electrical grid or a pipeline or water supply, do you deal with cybersecurity matters inside your portfolio?
3: Yes, uh, we do. Um, in fact, actually, when I was Minister of Defence, um, through our defence policy and through public safety, we actually set up uh, first of its kind a. Uh, so, uh, a cyber center of excellence as well, um, and to making sure that all Canadians, not just the federal government, get the appropriate uh, support. So, um, one is uh, we have we are identifying uh, critical infrastructure where we need to make sure that we ha- are cyber safe. But this is something of responsibility for all Canadians, all businesses, needs to be. You know, you need to be looking at a cyber uh, um, kind of safety. And um, the as the Cyber Center through the communication Security Establishment does provide information directly to small businesses, even and even individual Canadians, and how to stay cyber smart. And when it comes to the critical infrastructure, yes, we monitor these things very, very quickly. There's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes um, uh, in this area. Uh, high technical uh, world um, but in addition to this with something was to take place we also have measures in how to respond uh, for example at the federal level we have you know the high level capabilities to be able to provide to provinces uh, when it comes to biological chemical uh, response but in addition to this um, I'm not sure if uh, the callers may know we, um, we actually fund uh, the heavy urban search and rescue teams across the country and uh, in the Atlantic uh, Halifax is that team and uh, we're looking at building up their capabilities for this type of response as well. But as you rightfully, uh, rightfully mentioned, uh, the prevention is going to be very important. So cyber plays a very important role uh, in, in, in what we do, and we do have tremendous capability in Canada for this type of work.
1: I'm glad you mentioned your former position as the Minister of National Defense. And I know that's not your portfolio now. Bill Blair is the minister responsible. But when we talk about emergencies and emergency mitigation, uh General Wayne Ayer talked about the fact that with the reduction of some 900 plus million dollars in military spending and what that means for uh, preparedness, then it's going to be compromised or jeopardized. So that might be an emergency when we talk about uh, Arctic sovereignty, for instance. So your thoughts on having to save or uh, cut that much money from defense spending, which we'll have the NATO conversation, 2% of GDP and on and on it goes. But that could be an emergency just waiting to happen. Your thoughts?
3: No, first of all, I'm happy to talk about this, and I'll talk earlier. One is, when, when through our defense policy, the first defense policy that was actually outlined for 20 years, that actually we added and guaranteed the money for those uh, 20 years. And we put in 63 billions of additional funding over those 20 years. Just for the uh, maintenance and the procurement, and the the funding piece that they're, that they're looking at right now has got nothing to do with actual core funding for the Canadian Armed Forces. These um, um, these efficiencies and every organization is always be looking for efficiencies. So, for example, you know whether it's conferences, travel, those type of things. But the core funding for responding to Canadians or international operations is not impacted whatsoever. And I sit on the Treasury Board. Uh, um uh, as, as well and uh and uh national defense is actually exempt from um uh, from their core uh, funding so one is in our defense policy it clearly states that the uh, Canadian armed forces uh, as a as, um, uh, resource for last resort, uh, will respond for domestic uh, response and they will have the capability t- uh, to do so.
1: So this proposed saving, savings, You know, I don't know if you can find $900 million in redundancies or cutting down on travel, so are you saying that none of this will impact any reduction in munitions, equipment and the like?
3: No, no, it, it's one of the things that's absolutely not. In fact, actually, a lot of the, all that equipment, that funding is actually was uh, when we put the defense policy uh, in place. Um, you know, you, uh, when it comes to our shipbuilding strategy, the airplanes uh, buying the appropriate mechanisms, that's all uh, the funding was was put in place is not going to be impacted uh, whatsoever. In fact, what it's also not known when it comes to a lot of the, the procurement um, that is actually. Um, not going um, uh, quite well. Yes, there's always when you're when you're when you're do, create or doing military procurement, which is extremely complex. You're looking at designing and building equipment, where sometimes the science technology has to even catch up. So it is complicated, but we need to make sure that we have the right equipment. And as I stated, one in our defense policy, um, it was the first time in history that you actually had the uh, money there. Now, the reason this was done, and the Prime Minister actually agreed with this, and thankfully he did, because the previous defence policy that any government had put forward, yeah, you had a policy but didn't have the money. And any time you came into a financial difficulty situation, you cut from defence. So this time, no funding has been cut from uh, defence whatsoever. In fact, actually, when the defence policy was launched, it was the largest uh, cash investment into defence since the end of the uh, uh, Korean War. So yes, there's going to be complications, but at the same time, we need to find the efficiency to making sure that, um, you know, our tax for dollars are a bit was spent, but the core uh, support for the Canadian Armed Forces is not impacted whatsoever.
1: Appreciate your time this morning, Minister. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. As Minister of Emergency Preparedness, Harjit Sajan, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Jim is in the queue to talk about the indigenous exemption regarding the export of seals to the European Union. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say so good morning to the founding president of the Canadian Sealing Association. That's Jim Winter. morning, Jim. You're
4: on the air. I've had an interesting couple of days, eh? And uh, thanks to people like yourselves in the media, seals did get brought up, and uh the prime minister is due. He made some very encouraging remarks. First time I've heard a Canadian prime minister make encouraging remarks, and uh, let's hope they get followed up on. But there was also an interesting remark from uh, Madame Van der Leyen, who is the president of the uh, council, EU council, in respect to uh, indigenous peoples and seal hunting, and she basically said that uh, the EU, I'm paraphrasing, respects culture and therefore has created an exemption for seal products killed by indigenous people. And that's true, but it doesn't work. It's cumbersome, it's overly bureaucratic, it's very difficult to access, and there are only two authorized certification stations in Canada. And guess what? There isn't one in Newfoundland. So indigenous peoples in Labrador who hunt seals are out of luck. They can't access it, so therefore it doesn't exist.
1: So how does it work?
4: So, pardon?
1: How does it actually work? So you say there's well, two... Well,
4: basically the way it works is there uh, There has to be a certified uh, group agreed to by the EU. Usually it's a governmental group, probably in Nunavut and Northwest Territories is where the two are. And the... Uh, seals have to be proven to be killed by an indigenous person, or the seal product has to be proven to come from a seal killed by an indigenous person. They certify it, and they put tags on it or whatever, and off it goes. But very, very few uh, anything, very, very few products have ever ended up in the EU. It's it's wonderful on paper, but it doesn't work in the real world, unfortunately. And in the case of Newfoundland, (laughs) you can't get at it because there are no certifications. Uh, stations or governmental agencies or approved things by the EU, period. So basically while she's telling the truth, it's a truth on paper, but it's not a truth in the real world. And this is where the, the ban comes in all the time. It it kicks everybody. And the thing about the ban, Patty, is people say, oh, well, there's no markets over there anyway. They don't exist anymore. Well, that's not true. the The markets exist. What doesn't exist is access to the markets because of these bans, these Politically correct, ineffectual bans or, or effectual bans, but ineffectual exemptions. It's uh, it's really a bit bit crazy. And the other problem with it is that the ban is not written in language that you or I would find encouraging. Basically, the ban is written such a way that we are defined as being somehow immoral or below, you know, a lesser kind of people and everything. So. It's not just that we can't sell our products in the EU, it's a question that we've been branded by the EU as being somehow lower people, not really nice folks. And this is what the government of Canada needs to get on, and we have a unique opportunity now. Canada, let's face it, is a middle-of-the-road country. We don't usually have the leverage to go after the big guys. Right now, the Europeans need our resources. They're desperate for our resources this is the time for the government of canada and the government of newfoundland to stand up and say listen guys we're willing to help you out here but we would like you to lift this ban because it is not based on anything that you could respect even your own people can't respect propaganda they could respect science but this is not based on science so let's make a deal here we will work with you to help you solve your problems but you, on your side of the coin, have got to lift this ban and let your citizens choose to buy our products or not. Now, Matt, if they don't, Patty, if they don't buy them, that's fine. That's their prerogative. But right now, it's the politicians who are telling the citizens, hey, you can't do that. We're not letting you do it. And, of course, in the United States, uh, with the MMPA, as you rightly mentioned the other day, the same thing exists. I'll give you a crazy idea, or a situation. In the Magdalene Islands, the guys developed bait for catching lobster and crab because they couldn't get mackerel. DFO shut down the mackerel fishery. So they developed a bait that used seal meat. And then a company in PEI said, oh, that's a good idea. Let's sort of refine it a bit. And they developed what you might call a bait bag. And it was wonderful. And somebody said, oh, we better check with the MMPA. So the Canadian government sent a letter down, A middle-level bureaucrats sent a letter down to a... The MMPA people in uh, the United States, and they came back and they said, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. If you use any seal meat in any bait to catch any fish or crustacean, we will ban that product. That's how crazy it is. It's absolutely Looney Tunes. So two things count. One is these bans are an affront. They're offensive to us as a people. And it's not just Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. It doesn't say that. It says Canadians. It's offensive to us as a people. And secondly, if these bans are lifted, we may access the markets or we may not, depending on individual citizens. But we are democratic people. That is the right of the citizen to say, no, Jim, I don't want your product. That's fine. But at least they have access to it. So the politicians need to get, stand up for what's right. And it's interesting, the word democratic, in this meeting that just went on in, the, in, the, in St. John's with the EU people. I don't know how many times I were, read the word democratic in the information they were putting out about the nature of the meeting. It was all over the place. But it's not democratic to let propaganda rule. That's undemocratic. Last one, Jim. Anyway, we hope that we can uh, we can have some changes. Let's hope the Prime Minister follows up on what he said. Let's hope Premier Fury follows up with the Prime Minister. And let's get the laws changed for our dignity, Patty, Not just for the markets, so, but for our dignity as a people.
1: Fair enough. So, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but if there's only two certified groups to take the indigenous seal hunt products to Europe, I mean, let's just say, for instance, the Innu Nation listening this morning would like to get certified. What do they have to do?
4: Well, they got two choices. Uh, they can do nothing. Three choices, really, they can do nothing. They can demand that the EU put a certification uh, uh, station in Labrador, or they can pack up their pelts and their information and hike themselves over to the Northwest Territories or Nunavut and get the ones over there to do it for them. Now, <clears throat> then they've got to prove that they are who they say they are. It, you know, come on, it's a bit ridiculous. So they're really out of luck. That's it. They don't have a choice. They're being abandoned, you might say.
1: It's all very convoluted. I appreciate your time again this morning, Jim. Thanks for this.
4: Thank you, Patty. Cheers.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. David, will I do that or take the news break? Okay, let's get this one before we get to the news on line number two. Good morning, Rosalind. You're on the air. Hi, Rosalind. Are you there on line number two, Rosalind? some sort of click. I'll put her on hold. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. We'll make it back. Plenty of time for you. Don't go
0: away. Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCMcares.com Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Try it again. Good morning,
1: Rosalind. You're on the air. Well,
5: yes. Yeah, sorry about that, Patty. Good morning, my darling. Good
1: morning to you. I, no worries.
5: I hit the half button. No problem. But anyhow, what I wanted, I wanted to say a had- to our fire chief of Kings Cove and uh, area, Kings Cove and area fire chief, uh, Kevin Ryan, who turned 64. Today. I missed getting his name on Saturday, so I thought I'd call you, and then because uh, everybody listens to Patty Daly. So, anyhow, best wishes from all his supporters, families, and friends, and that's Kevin Ryan.
1: Sounds good. I'm sure he appreciates he's, the birthday he's wish.
5: A, yes, he's an excellent fire chief. He He, does, he goes beyond everything to help everybody. So I appreciate that, Patty, and I thank you, and you have a special, great day.
1: You too, Rosalind. Thanks for this.
5: Thanks, thanks a million. You're I'll welcome. Take my call. No Bye-bye. Problem.
1: Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line three. Eugene, you're on the air.
6: Hello, Patty. Hi there. I thank you to David and yourself and VOCM for giving me the opportunity to get on and voice my concern. Uh, this morning, my topic is the ceiling. And uh, I was listening to you pream, and we talked about the sealant and uh what our Prime Minister had to say, I just heard Jim on there talking about the sealant, very knowledgeable and but no good news eh everything is, is pretty dismal, and and which is unfortunate uh uh unlike what Jim did understand from the Prime Minister, I thought he was mum on and jumbling, and uh if you if you if you you, you you played it this morning, I think you did or some of you have seen anyway his conversation and it wasn't very uh, great I think to the people of this province and, and Canada and uh, it's unfortunate, you know, we're always um, I don't know uh, old hostage, I don't know what it is, by the other countries mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, I grew up on Fogo Island, and, and the seal was, was major there. I mean, you know, uh, you know, we ate the seal, you know, bottled, fried, roast, whatever, and sewed and, and so the, the the skins, the pelts. And, I mean, it was a big thing spring of the year. People even drowned trying to get seals, you know what I mean? That's true. But uh, you know, uh, it's been cut back because of the pretty seals, which is uh, baloney. Because I mean, everything we kill is pretty, as far as I'm concerned, a sheep, uh, you know, a tuna, whatever it is. And 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 it's unbelievable that they're still controlling uh, our country by doing that. You know and uh, it, it should never be happening and our government should be strong enough to make sure that there is a good positive seal fishery and and the cannery and whatever it is because seal is a wonderful meat and it could be a a big thing for our province you know uh, doing some digging on the internet and do you know uh, we had a moratorium in 92 and uh, obviously you know that uh, mr crosby was the man at the time and uh, you know the kingpin behind all that was russia Russia was the kingpin behind making sure that there was a moratorium. Another country seeing that we had a moratorium in our province. And I, and I remember 92, because I was back on Fogo Island. Actually, I was working back there on the businessman at the time. And, and uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate because, um, you know, we got to, like, this year. Well, first of all, what do, what do cod eat? Cod eats capron. What do seals eat? Seals eat cud. So, I mean, common sense would tell you these are the two things that we got to – look after. I mean, if you've got a big capelin fishery, you probably want to have a big uh, food fishery or vice versa. But it can be controlled to the point that it's it's feasible. And I understand this year, because this is the best cod find since 83, that we're going to have a big increase in the coders, in the cod, in the turbot, or whatever, especially the cod, because last year it was better than when John Cabot came over. I know on Fogo Island it was anyway. So uh, m- my opinion is where government is not fighting for us like they should. And that EU uh, meetings in St. John's the other day was a wonderful chance to get that point across. And it wasn't. And like Jim was saying, you know, we're left behind. We're just not getting what we deserve. And, Paddy, I hope, I hope that this, this spring, when them quotas are increased, that the local companies in Newfoundland, Labrador, or wherever, will get first choice before the European nations. Paddy.
1: Fair enough. Uh, I, I think Jim does a good job in speaking to the hypocrisy of it all and the, the contradictory nature of any of these policies regarding seal export. It's just madness. I mean, if you, if you try to go to the United States with seal skin boots on, they take your boots, right? Remember that story a number of years ago where a lady had a seal skin purse, they took it. Like, I mean, what's going on here? It's just absolute madness. I appreciate they the time this morning, Eugene. They thanks.
6: Uh, yeah, they don't think you feel that if you go in there. <laughs> no, it doesn't make sense. And, and Jim sized it up pretty good, I must say. And uh, I just hope that uh, this spring our, our our country, our province will be us and the quotas will be given to local companies and uh, we prosper from it. Thank Pre- you, Patty. Thanks. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Eugene. All the best. Uh, have a good you too. Bye bye. Also, you know, one of the issues that they discussed last week that I've failed to mention this morning was critical minerals. Like, I mean, they are thirsty for a lot of our resources. So it's not just clean or energy like green hydrogen. We are one of the only democratic countries on the face of the earth with a sizable percentage of the critical minerals required. I think we have something like twenty of the prime thirty or thirty-one of these minerals in the country. So while they are thirsty for that stuff. You know, there's an opportunity here. Canada does a pretty good job researching and developing. We don't do a really great job monetizing ideas. Same thing when we talk about supply, secondary or tertiary processing. There's no argument against, uh, if we're going to mine these minerals and there's global appetite for the end product, let's make the product. Let's not just, you know, extract the mineral, send it elsewhere, they create the jobs and the end product and we buy it back. I mean, we should be able to do better, especially on this critical mineral issue. Anyway, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Sharon, you're on the air.
5: Hi, Patty. Hi. I don't. Mean, I don't normally. I had. I haven't called in at all. But I have to call in uh, to give a big shout out to Doctor Todd Jammer from Medicuro. Um, I've been waiting two weeks now for Medicuro to refill some prescriptions because I don't have a family doctor, unfortunately. But Todd Young was here about a month ago, and I was talking to him for Medicare, and he said he was going to be in St. John's at a certain place. And I got a cortisone shot from him, which was fantastic. I've been waiting now two weeks to hear from Medicare to get home, my results. And I finally got a response on Friday after waiting two weeks that I'm on a waiting list. So I don't have a family doctor and I haven't had one in two years and I rely on them to fill my prescriptions. I've gone to clinics before and got a, another cortisone. No, not yeah, one in uh, a different place. But they don't refill certain medications and I'm, I'm and I got the drugstore to lend me some until I hear from Medicare. So I'm just letting you know that I was that That, I'm sorry, Ta-Jung, Dr. Ta-Jung is a fabulous, absolutely fabulous doctor. He was so sweet and such a gentleman when I've seen him. And I'm just waiting now for almost two weeks now to get my my apparel.
1: We asked Dr. Young directly about wait times for people who are trying to uh, get a virtual appointment through Medicuro. So you say you're waiting two weeks this time. What have wait times been like in the past?
7: Uh,
5: Three or four
1: days. So much different turnaround time.
5: Oh, my gosh. I mean, when they told me on Friday I'm on a wait list, I'm thinking, well, it's almost two weeks now that I've emailed them like 10 times. (laughs) You know, oh, do want this? They want that. I gave them every single information they asked me for. Then they come back and they said, oh, you've got this part. Not I did feel long. all. And this is not my first time doing it. But anyway, I did say that if there's any way possible that Dr. Todd Jones could call me, that would be fantastic because he's the last person I spoke to. And unfortunately, a month ago or a month, maybe two months ago, I'm sorry, that he was out here. And I didn't need no medications, he felt. Yeah, that's
1: my problem. <laughs> Fair enough, Sharon. So if anyone working at Medicuro or Dr. Young himself uh, is listening and want to call David, get your last name and your telephone number so they can get uh, in touch with you directly, we're happy to share. All right, thank you very much. I wanted not over, long, over there. No, 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 that's right. So we'll just leave it with David, and he can share pass along the information if requested. Okay. Sharon, are you on a wait list to get a family doctor? Yes.
5: Yeah.
1: You are. So you're on Patient Connect. I'm on Patient Connector. Okay. I would just make sure because some people don't know what they might have to do as opposed to just calling clinics to see if they can get on. There's actually a formal roster. I was on it for about 11 months before I got a family doctor, so we'll see where it oh. goes. So, Medicuro, please call David Williams to get Sharon's contact information so we can get that prescription refilled. Thank you so much, Peter. You're welcome, That's Sharon. Have You too. Take care. All right, right. Bye-bye. bye-bye. All right. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back, Peter wants to talk about the incident that happened on Brazzle Street yesterday. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Peter, you're on the air. Hi there, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. Thanks. How about yourself?
7: Okay. Um, so with yesterday, um, the RNC made a, sta- a bunch of statements about public safety. And uh, I would kind of like to... Highlight the timeline of events yesterday to point out that their statements about public safety are just a bunch of bovine scatology, to put it mildly. How so and why? Um, Because uh, of the way that things work. Uh, You'll see as I get along with this. So six o'clock in the morning yesterday, I am about to leave my house to go to work and I hear, boom. A very loud boom that I instantly recognized as a gunshot. Because this happened about 40 meters from my house. Um, I called 911 immediately let them know that there was a gunshot fired in my neighborhood didn't know exactly where but i gave them like a kind of general area as to where it would be um by 6:30, i had heard a third gunshot and i had called into 911 again to say hey i'm hearing more of these they're in the area you guys need to find this like as soon as you possibly can
1: both the rnc on the site around 6, uh, 6 a.m I believe that they were. Okay. Uh,
7: So they did not issue a public warning to stay out of the area until 8.25 a.m. on their Twitter. That's also when it went up on VOCM News. Um, That's two and a half hours after – the call was made. I mean, just assuming that it took them until 6.30 a.m. to get there, that's still a full two hours after they've realized this situation is unfolding. Um, Then there's the Santa Claus parade. So they decided to cancel the parade at 11.30 a.m. when most people were already in the area waiting for the parade to start they had gotten their spots and all of that had they have made that announcement an hour earlier they would have prevented families from walking through the neighborhood because that's exactly what happened i had to open up my window and tell people get out of here there is an active shooter in the area um so i'm just saying like their statements about public safety, sure, I'm sure they're very concerned about our public safety, but their inaction or their time frame of action doesn't really help promote the public's safety.
1: there's a timeline discussion to be had fair enough if they first are made aware of shots being fired at 6 a.m and to use your number let's say they're outside at 6 30 you know if they know there's an active shooter and now an armed standoff i know they began to evacuate people in close proximity to the home that were ta- the house that we're talking about so the gap between there and people being told to remain in place lock your doors and then the timing between there and the unpredictable nature of the standoff between getting to the downtown st john's crowd at 11 30, or actually, I don't know what the timeline is there. Do we know that the RNC did not reach out to downtown St. John's until 11.30? Or had, do you think maybe they did it earlier and it took till 11.30 for the decision to be made to postpone the parade? I don't know the answer. Do you?
7: There's certainly some questions to be to be raised in this whole timeline of events, I believe.
1: Well, it's happening far too often that we uh, hear these types of stories, and there's always going to be debate about timelines. You know, sometimes it seems like the RNC have done a very good job, like with that issue out on CBS where Buddy's just waiting to be sentenced here now, he's pled guilty. It felt like they were right on top of it, the communication was clear, it was on time. This one, I don't really know what to say. What I think yep. I need an answer to is exactly when did the RNC tell downtown St. John's that the recommendation is to postpone the parade, or the directive was given, I don't know but it was absolutely 11:30 uh, that the final decision had been made actually i sent my son a text because he and his girlfriend were making their way to the parade site yesterday morning let's see what time i sent that uh that'll give us an idea it was about 10 minutes after it was about 10 minutes after i saw the news so yeah 11:41. okay exactly. here we go i've got some live updated information work. for you right here uh, contact made with the city St. John's Regional Fire Department downtown St. John's just before 11 a.m. and I guess the decision didn't come down until 1130
7: oh okay but I mean that situation was unfolding for hours before I mean it, I feel that that discussion should have been uh, a lot faster to occur right because that was coming right at where the parade was ending or that was unfolding right where the parade was ending. Um, People were going to that area to watch the parade. It was, you know, that timeline needed to be more efficient.
1: Yeah, it's hard to say. I'm actually getting uh, live updated information here from the RNC. So, you know, I, I've just followed up with another couple of questions, and we'll see if we can get any additional information. Yeah, look, I mean, when there's going to be something as dangerous as an active shooter, time, of course, will be the most critical component, right? I suppose. Well, I guess second to bringing it to a peaceful resolution, which thankfully did happen at Brazzle Street. But I'm going to see if I can get a few more answers regarding timelines. All right, thank you. I appreciate your call, Peter. Thanks. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Let's go here. Where am I going? Line number one. Say good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you.
8: Yes, sir. Patty, I wanted to, uh, I guess, uh, just resurrect a topic that uh, we have talked about uh, in the past, but uh, haven't heard a lot of discussion about it uh, lately, and it's something that I think should never fall off our radar and that's the whole uh, aspect of uh, democratic reform and specifically I want to talk about campaign finance reform and uh, I was listening to uh, a caller on your show there earlier this morning I think his name was Mike and he was making some pretty I'll say serious uh, allegations um, you know uh, as it relates to contracts and so on and I have absolutely no idea whatsoever if there's any validity to it or if there isn't but certainly you know when we when we uh, think about government spending and contracts and so on and there's questions about about all that stuff then you know having a system in place where um companies businesses individuals are not tied financially uh, to politicians, to political parties, particularly those that are in power, uh, I think it's important that that, that, that tie be cut, not necessarily because there's any real um, um, wrongdoing happening, um, not saying there is or there isn't, but certainly there could be a perception um, that there is. And, and um, you know, of course, back around, I oh, don't know, two and a half years ago, Three years ago now, Uh, we had put a committee in place. It was an all-party committee, including independent member, and I was the independent member uh, to chair a committee to look into uh, democratic reform, campaign finance reform was actually uh, what we had decided we were going to start. We actually had uh, we were just about to uh, launch uh, public engagement uh, sessions on that very topic and um, Premier Fury decided to call a provincial election. Of course, once he did that, the government got dissolved, and so did the committee. And uh, they've been, he's been the premier now for over two years and uh, has decided, I guess, that he doesn't see the wisdom of uh, bringing that back and looking into any kind of uh, democratic reform. But I do think it's very important uh, to our democracy Uh, I don't think that we should have, uh, as I said, uh, governments or or any politicians really tied to any particular individuals or to any companies in terms of because they're getting campaign donations that they may be swayed one way or the other to uh, let contracts in a certain way or, um, you know, or hire consultants or whatever or make decisions uh, that are not in the best interest of the people.
1: Perception is reality It's as simple as that I can't tell you, well, I can't tell you. Just about every single time we have stories about contracts being let in any form of government work, then the immediate questions are, were they at the Premier's $500 uh, plate dinner? Are they donors to the party? I mean, it happens every single time. So it's the Wild Wild West here for campaign donations. I mean, just think about it. There's better guidelines in place federally than there is provincially here. It's high time we clean it up because whether it be big infrastructure contracts or otherwise, Perception is that people are getting return in form of favours on government contracts for their donation. That might be fair, it might be true, it might be false. Uh, ministerial involvement is a question. They'll all say the procurement group itself does all the decision making and the fairness test, what have you. But people will continue to think that there's something nefarious at play if they don't change the bloody rules.
8: Absolutely, and you know, if you look at if you were to uh, t- take the time. To look at who was attending, um, you know, and I'm not just talking about this particular administration, but I'm sure you, I'm, I know you can go back in time and look at previous administration sure. and different political stripes, and you will clearly see uh, if you look at, you know, who's sponsoring holes at the uh, party golf tournaments and who's attending these, uh, like you say, five hundred or five thousand dollar plate dinners, and you will see uh, a connection there. Now. As I say, maybe it's coincidental because we are a small place, and the reality of it is that there are only so many companies here in Newfoundland, so there is going to be no doubt there's going to be some crossover. Of course there is. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be, but uh, but uh, still, some of, it, some of it, when you look at some of it in terms of the donations, the amount of donations, and then the amount of contracts that are let to a particular company or individual, it certainly raises... Uh, Red flag. So it's something that we need to do. I, I you know, I, I know there seems to be no willingness because I guess it works for the parties. It doesn't necessarily work for the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. And but we do need to make those changes. We should be severely limiting the amount of money that can be donated by individuals or by uh, uh, companies to whether it be candidates, whether it be to the parties. And we should also be cutting the amount of spending that's allowed to happen. During an election, because quite frankly, there is so much money wasted uh, in in elections. It's, it's, It's crazy, actually. It doesn't it should not be about who has the most brochures, who has the glossiest brochures. It should not be about who has the most big billboards up stuck up on the highway or whatever. It should be. And we and we definitely don't need the big old ego bus going buses going around the province with the leader's face stuck on us. Uh, you know, there's public debates that will happen on VOCM uh, and and uh, NTV, and there's usually there's two or three others that the leaders can debate. Everyone can, can hear the platform, see what they stand for. Candidates can do it the old-fashioned way. They can actually knock on doors and talk to people, uh, stand on their record if they have one, uh, or try to convince people that they're the right person for the job. And let's do it the right way. Let's, let's cut out all the, uh, the money and the need to get these companies and these big donors involved to begin with. And I think we would be uh, doing great service to our province and to democracy in this province if we were to do that.
1: Well, I'll just add this point before I get to the break. Also, uh, companies, especially the big ones, are individuals with deep pockets, they're not just donating to one side right they will to spread the wealth around for the obvious reason because the party in power today might not be the power the party in power next go around so that's also a very natural churn in this world in addition you're right there if you look at the uh, companies or individuals that have made campaign donations it's not a very deep pool it just isn't you know especially when we talk about major contributions as opposed to someone putting in their 50 dollar bill as an individual who supports one candidate or another i appreciate the time paul Off to the break i go
8: Thank you, Paddy. Have a great day.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Enjoy
8: listening to your show as always. Thanks,
1: Paul. Bye-bye. All right, uh, before we get to the break, uh, just some more information. Okay, uh, this is about the Brazil Street incident. Contact made with the city, St. John's Regional Fire Department, downtown St. John's, just before 11 a.m. The event was continuing to evolve, i.e. evacuation of properties, attempted communication with potentially armed persons inside the home. Reports coming in that shots had been fired out the window and the intent of the op- occupants of the home was not clear as the process played out. So to ensure that the thousands of preyed attendees did not congregate and remain in the area, specifically near Mile 1 and the Delta, just 100 meters from evolving event, r advised officials that the large volume of attendees would be at risk specifically in the case where shots were fired from the contained home so and there's still more typing going on here so we'll just ask about if there were shots fired and nobody in custody and you know knowing that it might not be resolved in time for the safety of the parade attendees and the parade participants what would have been your ideal timeline as described by peter let's take a break when we come back plenty of time for you don't go away
0: Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. Your Merry Christmas Station is back. Your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Good morning, Todd. You're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. How about you? Not bad, but uh I want I wanted to call in a little bit late, but I wanted to call in uh, to just comment on the recent announcement from WestJet uh reinstating the uh overseas flight to London Gatwick. Um and you know, and, and to basically uh, send out uh, you know, pats on the back to all the folks who've been working hard uh on this file for a number of you know, years at this point, I guess, uh, you know, the provincial government uh, for stepping up and, and getting involved in, in the air access issue. You know, the, the folks at h uh, the folks at the airport, of course. I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people have been critical of the efforts going into improving access and routes and whatnot because we haven't seen a lot of traction. Um, and, you know, to see some positive announcements in the last number of months is great. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's it's not maybe well understood how hard people are actually working on this file and the difficulties that they face. And I think that the uh, the folks at the airport in particular deserve a really big pat on the back for, uh, for keeping their shoulder to the wheel and, and really, you know, seeing finally some... Positive results from from a lot of uh, hard work and effort that's uh, that's been happening over the last uh, number
1: of years and, and, and particularly recently. I don't know if we have a complete understanding of exactly what happened, though. All the same, there was some money in the budget that would be dispersed between all of the airport authorities in the province, and there was another couple of million put in. So I think the entire pot was some three point seven five million, spread based on pa- uh, passenger traffic. I, I'm a, I'm just guessing, and no money's been spent yet. I guess it's going to be about the popularity or the success of this thrice weekly flight to London's Gatwick so we don't know exactly what kind of money was spent here but one thing we do know is the reason why we lost WestJet's flight to Dublin was money because Stanfield in Halifax just got in made a more lucrative offer to the company at that point so we know there's some monies involved how much we don't know I I, like, I think this is a good thing. Now, people say, well, this is just for the elites, right? The rest of us can just eat cake. You know, it might be for folks who actually have the uh, uh, the money to actually make that... Uh travel themselves, but it's the other, passengers come the other way, which I think makes it an even better uh, idea, because the injection of new money, and people making decisions about whether or not they're going to visit this province based on cost, access, and direct flights or otherwise, I think this is going to be an actual uptick for folks who are not in the elite class, including me, because more money is in a growth sector is probably a very, very good thing, especially when we do cost-benefit analysis. So let's say it would cost a million dollars. How long is it going to take to recover a million dollars, uh, and in the form of return of investment for monies that's spent here from people from elsewhere.
9: Yeah, and those those statistics are out there, and they're they're relatively easy to pull together. I think they that are. The the, vis- the visiting the visiting. Uh, uh, traveler, uh, you know, overseas traveler spends something and I'm I'm not exactly sure that this number, Patty, but top of my head, something over around $3,000 you know, ish uh, that they drop in the province. You know, look, I think that that people uh, you know, the argument that this is for elite and this is so that people with money can go on vacation and all that kind of stuff. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't hold any water. Like, you know, investments in access are investments in economic development, the Labrador, um, and the government's job is to invest in the economic development of the province, uh, so you know like that 's where these monies should be going and in, into in uh, not into black holes and sinkholes, but into areas where uh, there's growth potential and you know as I have said to you many times before, tourism and visitation and access is the biggest growth potential that this province has. Um, you know, there's there's a, a studies out there in the last little while that suggest that there's something over 2.5 million individuals who have been are interested in coming to Newfoundland and Labrador. And our ability to convert to actual visitors is only touching a fraction of this number. Um, and the biggest single impediment, which is under study right now, but I'm pretty sure it's going to come down to uh, access and cost of access. Um, you know, Marine Atlantic, you can't get on Marine Atlantic in July and August. Uh, flights are, you know, expensive and roundabout and difficult. So the more direct access we have, the greater opportunity we have to overall grow. Um, the, the economy of the province because I do think that this is uh, you know, this has to be better understood by people um, and you know, like to pick up on, on, on John Steele's arguments you know, we invest in transportation in this province uh, to almost $80 million in provincial ferries which is, you know, we need to move people to their places back and forth from the places where they live, but if we're going to spend that kind of money on that service, which arguably doesn't necessarily grow the economy, maintains an economy, but doesn't necessarily grow um you know we need to look at uh, similar investments that have growth potential and, and you know providing access to Europe to northeast US to different parts of Canada in uh, you know more varied and accessible and hopefully relatively affordable ways is uh, is a huge upside for the province and i think that you know it's it's not the rubber hasn't hit the road in the way that we'd like it to over the last number of years but Um, You know, I I will stand by it that, you know, tourism and visitation will be, you know, the the biggest piece of Newfoundland and Labrador economy 15 years from now, whether we want to believe it or not, because that is where the opportunity lies.
1: And of course, we're not just talking about people who live in London, <laughs> maybe we're going to be uh, travelers to this province. If I'm living in, I don't know, Berlin, and I'm looking at potentially visiting Newfoundland and Labrador, and I see that, well, okay, I can go to Heathrow or Gatwick or whatever the case may be, and then I got to go to Toronto to come back to Newfoundland, then I'm probably not seeing that as a very attractive option. So unless that my, I had my heart set on this province as a destination, that might be the reason I say, nah, maybe not. Let's see. Let's go somewhere else. Oh, let's go to Banff.
9: Yeah, and you know, look, the, the, I think that again, what people should understand, and I mean, I think a lot of people do understand it, but but look, there are destinations in this world uh, that don't have near the uh, you know the natural gifts and the product that Newfoundland and Labrador offers. Uh, you know, there are there are destinations all over the world that don't have you know, whales and icebergs and, you know, hiking trails and nature and open spaces and clean air and beautiful people and wonderful culture, Uh, you know, the assets that we have relative to uh, what we've been able to convert into a tourism economy uh, are not, are not, you know, congruent. Um, You know, there are places that have far, far, far less to offer uh, that do way, way, way more in terms of economic value based on access. You know, so like if we combine the natural gifts and the built, the built infrastructure that we have and are continuing to, to work on in this place with more affordable, better access, I mean, the sky is literally the limit in terms of what that upside could look like. Um, and, you know, I don't think that it's, it's not ridiculous to think that we could grow the tourism economy in Newfoundland and Labrador by four or five times. And that is a massive number, and that impacts every single person in Newfoundland and Labrador and helps make sure that schools stay open and that hospitals stay open and that clinics stay open and that roads get fixed and that internet access get built and all of those things. You know, the economic driver that tourism could be for Newfoundland and Labrador is continually untapped and unmisunderstood, And I do think that, you know, these types of investments by government and others to grow access and to, to create this opportunity for more people to get here easily more easily and more efficiently and affordably um, is is a massive upside, and and hopefully, uh, in time, we will start to see the benefit of that in a better way than we have till now. Appreciate the time, Todd. Thanks for the call. Thanks, Betty. Take, Take care. You too. Bye bye. Bye
1: bye. All right. Before we get to the break, let's talk about the Vivian Silver fundraiser. Good morning, Dr. Francis Scully. You're on the air.
10: Oh good morning, Paddy. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, can you hear me? I can. Yep. Good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Vivian Silver is uh, was a seventy four year old uh, Canadian Israeli peace activist. She was born in Winnipeg, and uh, she was involved with uh, human rights and peace activities her whole life. And later moved to Israel, lived in southern Israel, and she's one of the twelve hundred people who were murdered on. October the 7th. So it's particularly poignant but telling that uh, this beautiful peace activist who used to go to meet people um, coming out of Gaza and needed their cancer treatment in Israel to bring them there and so on uh, was one of the victims. And uh, so she, um, you can check online, but she devoted her life to nonviolence and peace activities and she um, began a group called Women. Uh, wave um, piece and so I'm uh, organizing an event on uh, November 30th Thursday, 6.30 to 8.30 on the lower floor of the Justina Centre in beautiful outer cove and the entrance fee is $5 and everybody's welcome to come and I was hoping, I'm still hoping to have some singing but my young musicians who are going to help me and um, one of them has a part time job, the other one has exams. So, so I'm not quite sure about all this now. I'm still trying to sort that out. So, musicians, I, I thought we would sing, but um, in any case, I'm also going to have uh, white poppies there. And I'm encouraging people to donate a little bit and wear white poppies as a symbol for non violence um, because we have. A pandemic of violence. And in fact, starting November the 25th to December the 16th, there's a, uh, a, 10th, there's a 16 day program uh, in Canada talking about violence against children and women and what to do about it. So it's all part of this. Thanks.
1: Where's the money going to go, Vivian? Or pardon me, Frances?
10: Well, I I have to see if we have money because it depends how many people come and so on, I have to rent the place and so on. But any money that's that's over will be divided between her organization, Women Wage Peace, and uh, save the children who are working with children in uh, the Gaza Strip.
1: Fair enough. I hope you get a, a nice turnout, and I appreciate you telling us about it this morning, Dr. Scully.
10: Oh, thank you very much, Teddy. Thank you very much. And I'm hoping people uh, will consider wearing the white, white poppies as a symbol of promoting um, non-violent solutions to conflict of every kind. Yeah.
1: Thank you for thank this. You. Good luck. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And some of the, one of the, I guess, in addition to all the sadness with the loss, is the fact that initially the family thought that Vivian Silver had been kidnapped and was one of the hostages. And so when they found out that her remains had been found, of course, they were holding out that glimmer of hope that they would see their loved one again, because she was being captured, she was captured by Hamas, but lo and behold, the poor woman is dead. And talking about uh, violence, just a couple of quick notes on the Purple Stocking Project. So Violence Prevention Avalon East and the Purple Stocking Project looking for your donations to create some festive care packages during the holiday season. So it's a pretty long project, list. list. I'll give you some uh, bare bones here. Uh, pajamas, art supplies, body lotion, conditioner, puzzles, body wash, deodorant, razors, blankets, face cream, toys and candies and socks and card games, grocery cards, shaving cream, chewing gum, hairbrushes, slippers, chocolates, uh, coffee carts, toothpaste, crayons, uh, warm hats, and if you are interested, you can simply send an email to violencepreventionstaff at gmail.com. So violencepreventionstaff at gmail.com if you'd like to contribute to the Violence Prevention Avalonese Purple Stocking Project. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jim's in the queue to talk about family doctors. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air.
11: Yes, good morning. Can you hear me okay?
1: I can hear you okay. Go right ahead, Jim.
11: Yeah. No, uh, I, I was wondering about that uh, government program where you register for a family doctor. Uh, um, I registered back in May of 2022. My family doctor left in and she said, uh, you need a family doctor right away because you're a very complicated uh, patient. So, anyway, about a month ago, I phoned in to see what the status was on the program. So, the guy called me back the next day, and uh, I asked him about it, and he asked me what my medical problems were. So I told him, I said, I've had a heart attack, a stroke. i got diabetes on four needles plus a day, plus pills. Pills five, cholesterol, blood pressure. Um, and uh, like the arteries in my neck, one's 100% blocked, one's 80% blocked. i got aneurysm in my stomach. I got, I just had bypass surgery done on my leg. And I'm going to public health twice a week for ulcers on my feet. So, anyway, he said, Well, since the program started, um, he said, the only people we've been assigned doctors to as uh, pregnant women and those related matters. And we have a backlog of those. So, when we clear those up, we'll be looking at other people. Now, I heard you say before that you got the family doctor program and I heard you say just a few calls ago that after 11 months you got a doctor.
1: Yeah, it was something like that. It was around the 11 month mark, yeah.
11: So anyway, when I got out the phone, I sat back and I said to myself, well, I never heard Paddy Daly say he was pregnant, so how did he come to get a doctor?
1: Fair question I don't and I wasn't aware really how they break it down as who gets the priority of being assigned a doctor first if you say it's pregnant women and others with uh, uncomplicated needs is that what you said Jim?
11: That's what he told me Okay He said we we're only pregnant women and related matters have got a family doctor since we started and we have a backlog of those so he said we'll look at your case when we clear up that backlog
1: yeah, you're right. I am, I am not pregnant, but I did get assigned a family doctor. And I know for a fact that it wasn't just pregnant women or related matters, because a couple of my friends, we signed up around the same time. Uh, I got my doctor assigned about a month after one of my buddies, then my other pal, because we, we all talked about it one day, I'd say, well, let's, let's sign up. And he got his, and neither one of us are pregnant. And so I don't know exactly what the comment that you got really necessarily means. Dave, did we try to get Patient Connect on this program a while ago? We did didn't we? And with no luck. So maybe we'll have to try that again so people know exactly where they stand insofar as the timeline for potentially getting a family doctor.
11: Yeah, because I've been on here now a year and a half and I haven't no family doctor. And I really need one.
1: It sounds like it. So what are you doing for your health care now? Are simply going to the emergency room? Well, I try not to go there. Yeah.
11: there in Carpenter trying to get in I mean I, uh, I went down there not long ago when I had pain in my foot and they gave me a needle for the pain and the next weekend I went back again and the nurse there said you were here last weekend she said you need to you're going to get it ahead of anyone else so I waited through 32 patients to go through before she got me in So, it's
1: not a very good system. It's not working, uh, obviously, if you're waiting as long as you are. So, let's see. That's what I'll do. uh, Between myself and David, we'll see if we can't get the folks at Patient Connect to come on and walk us through the process and what kind of timelines people are looking at. Because as someone, I didn't have complicated needs, but I hadn't seen a family doctor in oh my god well, in, uh, oh, well over a, d- a decade so we'll see if we can get him on to tell us exactly how it's working and how they prioritize people because uh, to me the, my current health status uh, I would be, I would think I should get a doctor after you for instance with all your health concerns that you mentioned so let's see if we can get some information directly from the horse's mouth as they say No, 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 I thought that was funny.
11: Yeah. Anyway, check into it, you? I will. You can get some information on us.
1: I'll see what I can do, Jim. Stay tuned. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Very much. Bye-bye. bye yeah. bye yeah, you would imagine a man with the complex needs like Jim has would be right up near the top of the priority list to be assigned a doctor. And of course, I got assigned a family doctor in one of the new uh, collaborative care clinics of which, if indeed we can bring in the resources versus just shift healthcare professionals around, the collaborative care clinic for primary care teams just makes all the sense in the world to me. But if it's simply, you know, uh, Dr. Round Pearl closes his or her practice, goes to set up shop in one of the collaborative care clinics, leaves that patient roster behind that we haven't achieved a whole whole lot. So it's all about getting the staff right. Okay, so mentioned off the top, there's more uh, second round of public consultations regarding foreign interference into the elections. So in the initial stages, it looked like the potential for a foreign agents registry, which is very likely happening, is not possibly the universal solution. Also talking about the way that a ceases works and dissemination of information. So the question has been asked, well, when does this all start? Now, Officially, the Inquiry Commissioner uh, began her role effectively on September the 18th. No hearings have been scheduled yet, so that's a good question. It's one thing for the Commissioner to be in place for well over a month now, but when do the hearings begin? Uh, and it's Justice Hogg. The justice is uh, required to deliver the interim report by February of next year and a final report by the end of next year. So that's where we are in this uh, inquiry stage. We don't know when hearings are going to begin and how that's going to look. And of course, the question then will be, with testimony in camera or not given to the commissioner, how are Canadians going to get to see more than we've already seen? You know, we need to be informed. We need to know what happened. We need to know what the government and CISEs are doing about it because we cannot be subjected to the type of interference that we've seen or at least we've been uh, discussing. So I think it's probably fair to say that we're not going to get to see a whole lot more. You know, we're going to have to trust the fact that Commissioner Hogue has been approved by all the major political parties. The terms of reference have been approved by all the major political parties. So when we know full well that some classified and top secret information is never going to make it to my eyeballs as much as I'd like it, but it's not going to happen. So what will we actually learn here about what did happen with foreign interference, Chinese and otherwise, and it shouldn't simply be about China. It should be about Iran or Russia or whoever else is involved with nefarious motives. So that's the basics. The commissioner officially took her role on the 18th of September. No hearings yet. The interim report, February next year, final report by the end of that year. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you. Don't go away.
0: Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to
1: the show. Let's go to line number one. Randy, you're on the air.
0: Hello, buddy.
12: Hi there. I want to talk about the garbage question. My friend, she's 72 years old. Her husband's 73, he's laid off. I put the garbage out in the gold. I come out, put the garbage out say six or seven o'clock. My chip puts it out say six or seven in the morning at night, she gets the from the council. And the woman cracked through she's the senior and her husband sick, and she gets the letter from the council.
1: Saying what, you can't put your garbage out the night before?
12: No, what's what to say so we put it out say seven o'clock or six o'clock, you're gonna get a fine.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's someone in my neighborhood who works nights and they put out their garbage pretty much when they get home from work. I don't think he's ever been told he can't do it. So, um, uh, do you but, guys have uh, the rolling black bins? Yes,
12: I don't want them, yes. Okay, just wondering. I don't understand now if it's out, out of the street, but then the garbage market, what's the deal? Dad's supposed to have a key to get the mailbox and the garbage boxes?
1: Yeah, I don't know. So, what are they saying the actual problem is?
12: do not put your garbage out before 7 in the morning to pick up the garbage but if you put it out right before 7 or 8 o'clock you're going to get a fine or something like that or a penalty or whatever you have it.
1: yeah a fine I suppose is the right word for it yeah it's a bit nitpicky so is it a problem with where the garbage bin is out in the road at night and no, it's black and people might you know, not see it or
12: it's by the sidewalk and see the, so you can see it, you're blind you see it Hmm. Yeah, hold the, the door.
1: Now, because when I put my bin out, I put it on the road, right, not on the sidewalk. So no, I I'll would put imagine it on
12: the side, uh, Okay, fair enough. I put it there, right? Okay. But I have to come out here see, six or seven in the morning to put it out of my door. But why should I got about six or seven in the morning to put
1: well, I, I suppose it's as simple as, in places where it might not be easily seen and it's black and it's at night, that the likelihood that someone might be able to clip it with their vehicle is bigger than if it wasn't there. So I suppose that's why they do it. Whether or not it's fair, right. I'll leave it up to everybody listening.
12: Well, if you can't see it, it's going not have the Okay. <laughs> Have a good day. You
1: too, Randy. All the best. Bye-bye. I mean, it's got to be that, right? That's got to be the reason. And when it comes to uh, Jim and his call regarding uh, the wait time to get a family doctor, so it could very likely, and this is from a, uh, a listener sent to me an email, said it could be about location because not everywhere has these clinics established. They're trying to move towards uh, 35 in total, uh, peppered around the province. So location might be a particular uh, issue of concern there that's good good thought by that particular listener and in addition based on another note I got you know there are some doctors that if you're over 70 smoker have a bunch of underlying conditions they won't take you as a patient which just should not be the case I mean the oath is pretty clear right first Do no harm. Folks with complicated underlying conditions and or are smokers and or obese and or old, they're the folks that really need your care. So it's kind of ridiculous to me. Why would a doctor turn away someone who absolutely is the prime candidate for needing that type of care? for starters I don't think they should be allowed to do that to be honest with you you shouldn't have to take a test or fill out a questionnaire with your doctors to be evaluated as to whether or not you're an appropriate patient for them to me that's just not good enough uh, let's go to line number three Sigmore to the PC member for Terra Nova that's Lloyd Parrott good morning Lloyd you're on the air morning Patty how are you doing this morning not too bad at all how about you
13: doing very well thanks when I'm, when I'm bad you should be worried I guess It's ah, oh, go. a good day yeah
1: what's on your
12: mind yeah
13: uh, just wanted to call actually and talk about the housing crisis in Labrador, you know specifically uh, coastal Labrador, Labrador West, also Goose Bay. But uh, there was an article that came out on CBC. Uh, Marie Josee wrote. She was she was actually the country's first ha- housing advocate. and She talks about the deplorable conditions up on the North Coast and Torngat Mountains. Um, Patty, I mean, it's 2023, and and you sit back and we listen to government time and time again, and, and, you know, the reality is we have a housing crisis right across the province. And certainly if you listen to the news, uh, it's a national issue. Um, But, you know, when we're talking about uh, Happy Valley Goose Bay having a higher homelessness rate than uh, per capita than Toronto or Vancouver, uh, it's a scary situation. Um, you know, in Maine right now, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation owns 34 units, and, and there's six vacant. And some of those have been in disrepair for as much as 10 years now. Government goes back all the time, uh, no matter what it is. And, and I'll say successive governments because it is 10 years. It's obviously not It's not just uh, the Liberal government that's done it. But they go back, and, and they currently, you know, they, they consistently say – Bids don't come in uh, on par for price, and it's hard to get contractors and whatnot. So, I, I'd like to speak about my past. Actually, you know, in my past, I spent uh, an extensive amount of time in, in construction and uh, after the military. And you know, when you're in construction, or when there's an engineer looking at a bid, they use uh, what's called norms, and norms are specifically that they the offsets for what is normal when you're doing a job. But it's time for government to understand that all parts of Newfoundland and Labrador specifically Labrador but you know when you go into rural Newfoundland there are no norms everything costs more to do and and the expectation has to be that the cost of doing business is going to be high but the cost of not doing business in this situation specifically is much higher and you know when you look at the intergenerational effect of what's happened on coastal Labrador uh, you look at the mental health situation and the cost of, of not looking after people, getting them out, getting them out there on Skedavac or Medivac, all the things that are happening. It, it's really time for us to uh, start doing better. I mean, it, it, we, we've got to find a way to be better. And part of that means understanding that it costs more to do business in places like Labrador and rural Newfoundland. And government's got to make that step to do it.
1: Add to it, Nain has the highest food prices in the country as well. So there's a bunch of whammies hitting the folks in the the northernmost community in Labrador itself. So what's the suggestion? Go back in there with a full-on rebuild model? Yeah, I don't
13: know if that's it, Patty. But here's here's what I think government has to do first is when they put these tenders out, I don't think that they should have a a fixed price in their mind of what it's going to cost. They they need to understand what the norms are. And they have the historical data where they can go back and create their own set of norms. You know, they can go back and look at what it's cost to do business over the years, and understand that uh, putting up a piece of chip rock in in Maine doesn't cost the same as it does uh, in St. John's. You know, those are things that they need to do, and they need to be more intuitive and, and smarter with these bids. The other the other thing I would say is that you know, uh, when we do legislation in the House of Assembly, we put all kinds of lenses on And, and I've said for a long a long time, that, you know, since two thousand nineteen. I believe a big part of the solution for this province is that we need to put a different lens on rural Newfoundland and certainly isolated Newfoundland and Labrador uh, that we do on urban. And, uh, you know, once we do that, it gives us an understanding. And, you know, I think I've mentioned to you in the past, you look at Labrador West as an example, two of their major crises, two of their major problems there are getting educators, teachers, and doctors. And the reason they can't get people to go there is because there's no housing. There's there's dozens of widows and widowers, and there's all kinds of people who would love to sell their houses and remain in Labrador West and go into a retirement home, but it's just simply not available there. And it's not available because government won't go above the daily allotment that it spends in St. John's. And if they did that, there are companies out there that are more than willing to go to Labrador West, Goose Bay, maybe even Coastal Labrador, and, and build these types of community homes that would free up houses and, and help people, you know, it, it, it addresses the big picture. And that's where we fail. We, we think that putting a Band-Aid on something all the time fixes the big picture, but it doesn't. And if we don't start looking at things holistically, we're going to fail time and time again. And when you go to Labrador and you're talking about houses that are falling off the foundation and three to four inches of spray foam, and, you know, these people are, uh, the indigenous, you know, the Inuit and Inuit are heating their houses with wood and oil. And, you know, they can't avail of, the, they can't even avail of the new uh, rebates to put in heat pumps. And, you know, some of these houses aren't to a standard where they could. But in a time when we're trying to move things forward, we ought to be making things level everywhere and we're not and and you know when you go to coastal labrador i can tell you if anyone thinks there's not a level of alienation or or i wouldn't say it's alienation so much as the disadvantage they how disadvantaged they are right from the word go based on the cost of food the cost of heat you know the the housing that they have we can do better and an apology isn't going to fix any of it i mean we we really got to start looking at how we do things and and a part of that means understanding that it costs more to do business there And government is smart enough to understand that. It just doesn't seem like they got the courage to do it.
1: Just a couple things. And this comment on food. When there were two specific programs in place to try to help control costs for the folks in northern communities, it was the airlift subsidy and Nutrition North. Obviously, it's not working. If anyone's ever seen the price tag pictures that people send from places like Nain about how much it costs for whatever pack of pork chops versus what I pay for it in the East End of Saint John's, it is unbelievable. So, that it's is uh, an that issue- education. Though,
13: you know, I think I think those programs are still available, and obviously, there's there are grocery stores or or stores up there where people avail of services that where they when they need something right away. But I do believe that they can still, you know, avail of those two programs and get the food up there at, at a lesser cost. And I think part of that boils down to, you know, making people aware of the programs and them understanding that they have access to it. And, and you know, uh, a lot of these programs, both provincially and federally, we're all trying to move forward with technology. when we say that technology is the future, but I can tell you. It's no different than a senior in the district of Nova who calls me because they can't apply for a moose license or can't renew their license, their driver's license, because they don't have Internet. Well, I challenge you or anyone else to go to the coast of Labrador and tell me how, uh, you know, people living in the Natchez, uh, indigenous, you know, Inuit, Inuit people have access to the Internet. They simply don't. And, and therein lies a big part of the problem. So it's okay to offer programs, but it doesn't work if people don't know they exist
1: yeah absolutely and you know the, the way it's intended to work is that we cut the cost for transportation so that when it arrives it's not at an already a, pri- a price point that is breaking the bank so yeah. there's something just simply not working with both of those particular programs and then even if you talk about the coastal boats and the way we deliver uh, year-round it's just there's better ways to do business uh anything else this morning while we have you lloyd
13: no, Patty, like I, said, I just, I just urge government, you know, to to finally have a, a hard look at what we're doing in Labrador and understand that the cost of doing business in Labrador is substantially higher than it is anywhere else. But the cost of not doing it is costing people mental health in their lives.
1: I appreciate the time. Thanks, Dave. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Lloyd Parody. He's the PC member for Terra Nova. And, you know, the impact on people's mental well-being, I mean, it's obvious, right? There's been some stories written about the fact that we can talk about unemployment numbers, labor market participation numbers, all the rest. But for sure, with the cost of living increase and people having to juggle a second or a third job it does come to a point where the, that level of exhaustion has a direct impact on your mental well-being, and then things like depression and anxiety, maybe aggression, maybe people turn into self-medicating or what have you, is happening all the time, and more and more people are swept up in that particular predicament and circumstance of the job that they had, the full-time job they had, is no longer cutting it when you talk about the amount of bills coming in the door and the amount of money owed on uh, each individual bill. It's no question. I mean again we'll use the same numbers when the canadian mental health association was saying that not that long ago we were talking about one in five canadians are suffering with their mental well-being and or have a mental illness now we're using the number formally is one in four so it has drastic implications. But anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. First, we're checking in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Email address is openline.focm.com. But my preference is when you pick up the phone and give us a shout. So if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial 709 273 Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Well, I've heard from a couple of folks who were involved with the Pro Wind Proposal rally over the weekend out on the west coast and then the same person told me that they were uh, there and there was a good turnout same person followed up after the preamble to say that did I suggest that these projects are dead because of some court ruling in Germany no that's not what I said at all the issue is there has been a federal court ruling in Germany regarding monies for expanding the hydrogen industry What I also said was, we're unsure whether or not any federal, pardon me, national money or sovereign money, German money, government money, was going to be used to purchase green hydrogen and then maybe to sell it at a lower price point to their residents. We don't know. But here's the story that comes from Germany regarding this particular play. So there was a federal constitutional court ruling that put close to 20 billion euro in funding for the hydrogen economy at risk. So here's what happened. Da, 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 da. the overall pot of money is 211.8 billion dollars for 2024 through 2027 60 billion of that was part of this particular issue specifically regarding hydrogen six or pardon me 18.6 billion euro had been earmarked for building out the hydrogen in, uh, the hydrogen industry 3.8 billion euro to be allocated to the sector in 24 the remainder over the following three years so that's That's the question here. That money came from unused debt from the COVID-19 pandemic support measures and was all going to flow to their Climate and Transformation Fund. Now this court ruling says that that play is unconstitutional. As, pardon me, had to cough. As a result, the German finance minister, Christian Linder, blocked all non-committed financing from the $60 billion with the exception of a couple of subsidies, one for energy efficiency and one for renewable energy measures in large buildings. So the question being asked by me and by others is what does that mean for the end product of green hydrogen being created here and shipped via ammonia to Germany? does this have any price point implications that were just some uh, weeks ago not in play but based on this court ruling is it now the consideration that is now maybe complicated the business model and the potential for access to capital for any of these proposals we don't know that said it doesn't mean that because of all the ballyhoo surrounding the mou signed with germany it doesn't mean that's the only potential market for the product regardless if you're for or against it there's going to be other opportunities to sell the green hydrogen the questions of course will remain regarding the price point because when we look at other hydrogens including gray and the difference between the gray label and the green label is that gray hydrogen comes as a result of energy being generated by fossil fuels green comes as a result by being generated by renewables like wind so that's the difference there and they come with vastly different price points for the end user so i'm not saying that this German court ruling will trip up or further complicate matters for the proposals, which is why I've sent me emails to people in Germany to ask if some of that money is directly associated with purchasing this product and selling it at a reduced cost to their customers. So that's what we're trying to figure out. This one here, I read it this morning. I decided to leave it out of the, uh, the preamble this morning, but it's terrible. So when we see what the implications are of trying to put together the compensation fund for the victims of abuse at Mount Cashel, it came at a great cost for parishioners. You know, churches were sold, uh, parish halls were sold, and other belongings of the Episcopal Corporation of St. John's, the Roman Catholic Episcopal Corporation of St. John's. You know, as opposed to the church taking ownership for what had happened and paying the money themselves, of course, with their financial position here, with that corporation not having the money, and no... assistance coming from the Vatican, for instance, we all saw what the the sell-off meant. It gets particularly egregious when we talk about the fact that some of the most notorious evil abusers at Mount Cashel were simply shuffled abroad, right? That includes one of the names that I remember, Edward English. He was at one point sentenced to 10 years in prison for the abuse, the, the atrocity he committed against some of the residents at Mount Cashel. He spent some eight years in prison and he did federal time in New Brunswick. He stayed in that province for a while, but then he was shuffled out to British Columbia. So worked in a uh, Vancouver and Burnaby schools between 1975 and 1983. A 100 former students of those schools now say they were abused after those transfers were made. So the church simply moved the problem people, the evil criminals, along unbeknownst to the members of the school community in Vancouver and Burnaby. And consequently, Edward English did what he did at Mount Cashel to those poor boys as well. Now, the story I think is back in the news today because Vancouver police agencies, in assistance uh, with some New Brunswick law enforcement, they arrested Edward English yesterday. So they picked him up at his home in Moncton. Uh, Hasn't appeared in front of a a judge in Vancouver as of yet, but he has been arrested again. How common has that story been? Someone would commit those types of abuses and crimes and simply be shuffled on to the next parish or the next school or the next orphanage. It's just one of those disgraceful uh, tangents of these already brutal stories. So Edward English arrested again. He must be a pretty old man by this point, but... These are crimes that happened quite a long year ago, and now here we are, back in the news again. Absolutely rotten stuff. So that's the Edward English story. And yeah, you know, when we were told that all of the money for the compensation pot, which absolutely is deserved by the victims at Mount Cashel, To know just how much money is sitting in the Vatican Bank and what the value of their real estate assets are in this world and the amount of monies they've already paid to untold thousands upon thousands of victims, It's just remarkable that so many people who the church was part of their community. You may or may not be a church-going person, but plenty of people are, and the church they were attending is no longer there. Well, it's not there serving the purpose as a place of worship or as a church, and that story just really grinds me down, to say the very least. Okay, final check-in on the Twitter before the 11.30 news. Always some good action going on in there. You know what it is. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Also got... Uh, a note from a listener who will remain anonymous regarding the Brazel Street situation. So, apparently, there was a similar occurrence that happened on the 3rd of November, and yet no type of police presence like we saw yesterday was in place. Then there was the confusion about what door they should be knocking on, and like I said, you know, when you have the normal, hard-working Johns and Janes and their children simply live on that street, have nothing to do with the drug trade, not involved in crime, and I've I've been sent the pictures from one of the little girls' bedrooms. And there it is, with the police, armed, aimed at the home, people can hear the shots being fired, scared to death, have nothing to do with any of it, and those are just really quite something. So we'll compare and contrast some of the issues, like for instance between November 3rd and what the reaction was by the RNC versus what we saw yesterday. Okay, let's take a break for the news. Good shot. Good day for you to get on the program if you're so inclined, so pick up the phone speak with David during this newscast. Don't go away.
0: Your voice in Newfoundland and
1: Labrador's
0: biggest conversation.
5: If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open
1: Line every day.
0: Have your say weekday morning, starting at 9am on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to a great friend of the show. He's a veteran oil and gas advocate. That's Rob Strong. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air.
14: Hi, Patty. Good morning to you. How are you?
1: Excellent, sir. How about you? Good, thanks. Before we get into any oil and gas-related measures, tell us about George Cohen.
14: Oh, I happened to read this morning George Cohen died at, what, 84 or whatever. For for the listeners who don't know who George Cohen was, of course, he was the father of McDonald's in Canada. And also when took took McDonald's to Russia, so I just thought it was an interesting story. That's all. Yeah. Another interesting food story, by the way, is the story about Mary Brown's Greg uh, Greg. What's his last name? Roberts. Greg, Greg Robertson. Very interesting uh, one-on-one coming out. I think tomorrow in tomorrow's Telegram. So people should watch out for that because that's an interesting story as well.
1: They are growing extremely quickly. I think they've got, uh, was it 275 stores or they're aiming for hey, 275? Try 500. Yeah. Oh, 275 two is the expansion number. Unbelievable.
14: Yeah. Yeah. They're shooting for 500. So, wow. And now, of course, they bought into or they, they bought the burrito, fat Fat Bastard Burrito, chain as well and that's I think two hundred stores. So yeah, it's a, it's a real it's a real good story. It's it's real Newfoundland, it comes from a small business and now it's a multi billion dollar, it's certainly a multi million dollar business. So yeah, it's interesting reading for sure.
1: And that burrito shop is actually quite good. I've had it. I they that's put it right. in the, uh, the Mary Browns that they had down on the corner on Water Street. That is now a fat bastard. I had it in Toronto when we were there in the summer. It was okay. delicious.
14: Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Let's try it out.
1: And I always anyway, like making uh, a sports relationship when we talk about anybody. And there is one regarding uh, George Cohen as well. His son, that's Mark, right, was a former commissioner of the CFL.
14: That's right. I read that this morning as well. Yeah. There yeah. you go. So, of interest to you and, and your listeners, I assume, of oil and gas... A few interesting things happening on the on the go as we say. Obviously we're everybody's encouraged to hear that Tiranova has finally gotten back on location after having taken well, three years perhaps since they since they came off location. Yep. A lot of work. We all know about the five hundred million dollars that was spent. We all know about some of the follow up work that had to happen at Bull Arm. So it's back in production and it's I think there's about sixty to eighty million barrels left. So Let's hope that it has continuous production until uh, until the oil field is de- depleted. And that is assuming, Patty, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but that is assuming there are no potential what we in the industry call subsea tiebacks. And there's smaller, smaller oil fields close by, but not big enough to justify, a, a, you know, a standalone oil field, uh, you know, with the capital cost. But it might be 100 million barrels, might be 200 million barrels, sort of thing. And in our deep water harsh environment, 200 million barrels is not enough to justify the, sort of the high capital cost. So let's keep our fingers crossed on Tiranova, uh, in the event that there is there is some potential and. Uh, keep her fingers crossed that she's, she's up and running and, and producing.
1: Yeah, it's been out of place since 2019 and you you say, you know, the $505 million uh, that lifeline that was afforded to the company, I don't, I'm don't. i not so sure everybody realizes that's actually in play. You know, Suncor with their massive profits still got that money and it came in form of two things. There was $205 million in actual cash that came yeah. from that $320 million fund that Ottawa had established and right. then the royalty adjustment by the profits of $300 million, which means for the extended life of 60 or 80 million barrels of oil at Terranova, there's only going to be somewhere in the neighborhood, you know, based on price fluctuation, only somewhere in the neighborhood of $35 million in revenues over the lifespan of that field for the province. I
14: I listen, I I congratulate you on your research and I totally agree with you. It it was a decision that that government or governments made and... uh, whether it was the right decision or not, I'm not sure. It's not up to me to decide. But but with a limited amount of, of 60, 80 million barrels left and probably a price of around $80 a barrel, uh, we're not going to make any money off it. But, of course, we protected the jobs. You know, they are probably on the FPSO, there are probably, I'm just guessing, probably 90, 100 people at any one time. So you'd, you'd duplicate that because when there's 100 people out there, there's 100 people ashore, so that's 200. And then you've got three supply boats with probably 12 people, so 24. And then you've got mud companies and diving companies and testing companies and logging companies and, logging companies, and helicopter companies and supply based companies and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it's, it's protected probably, I don't know, I'm guessing three or 4,000 direct jobs.
1: Yeah, over the course of what they think is going to be about a 10-year additional lifespan for yeah. the field. Uh, in addition to that, there was a big ownership shakeup as well. I can't remember the numbers specifically. Suncor had a 38% stake, went up to 48%. Equinor walked away in full, and I don't think we ever saw any more details about their other partners, of which there were seven.
14: I think I recall, I, I, I could be wrong, but I think I recall Synovus, you know, the ex-Husky, and ovus having acquired a bigger stake, but I'm not sure. I'll have to look it up so next time we next time we chat we can uh, we can confirm it. But what's also interesting, Patty and Ty, and this leads into another subsea tieback story, is is the fact that Exxon has got a seismic program going coming to Newfoundland this summer and it's four D seismic, which is a, a a pretty more sophisticated, gives them a better visual idea of what the reservoir looks like. And they're going to be shooting 300 kilometers around Hebron and 400 kilometers around Hibernia. So people ask why. And this is, I guess, speculation on my behalf and others, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm not alone on this at all. As a matter of fact, there is some proof that the That Exxon might be interested in subsea tieback. But if we look at the Hebron development, when when the development plan application was approved by government, uh, they talked about a potential subsea tieback of a reservoir called Pool 3. So obviously, if they're shooting seismic around the Hebron platform, they want to know what the geology, what the reservoir, what the characteristics looks like. So that could be, and I I caution, it could be, that could be a potential subsea tieback. Our experience with subsea tieback in Newfoundland is interesting. People may recall the uh, Southern Hibernia extension, 200 million barrels. They actually reach the reservoir from the platform, but in order to get the oil to flow, you got to pump something back down. So they had to dig a dig in, well, we used to call them glory holes, but we now call them excavator drilling centers. So we had to dr- drill a big, uh, dig a big excavator drilling center, put your well heads in 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 a, in the hole that you just dug. So if an iceberg comes along, it doesn't knock it out. So we've had experience in. Uh, We've had experience in in subsea tiebacks, particularly Husky has had a several and and Hibernia has had one, and now maybe Hebron's looking at one as well. but part of that seismic program I talked about there's also four hundred square four hundred square kilometers around Hibernia. Hibernia's been in production of gee twenty six years someone told me I can't believe it. I've produced about 25 billion, million, twenty five billion b million Have produced about 1.6 billion barrels, I think, was the latest Kong I looked. And that's obviously another potential. So, you know, we may not be discovering new things. We may not not be developing new fields, with the exception of Bader Nord. I got my, uh, you know, I'm, I'm. I'm feeling good about that, but uh we can also we can also accommodate uh, extra production by by you know finding a smaller field within five ten miles of, of a platform digging digging an excavator drilling center or not depending on how the c n l l p b handles it and tying it back so extending the life of the two fields so that would be encouraging.
1: Yeah, and regarding the seismic work, you know, when the province undertook seismic work themselves, I think it was about $20 million per year, and as a result, eight new players, record land sales for individual parcels and for annual land sales at the CNLOPB. When they cut it out, people were in an uproar, but there was still lots of seismic on hand for upcoming parcels for sale. So, and apparently we're told by Minister Parsons, there's some $2 billion in the hopper for exploration next year. We'll see if that comes to pass. And there's only one piece ongoing now, ExxonMobil out there, or maybe they've concluded, but they did the first bit of exploration, or the only bit of exploration, this go-round. So, yeah.
14: We've got the horizon, the semi-submersible horizon. At a day rate, I read the other day in in one of my favorite publications called Upstream, I read the other day that that day rate is in excess of $500,000 a day. So we've got that rig coming over to drill one well for Exxon this summer exxon and their partnership with cater and then going on to drill sitka which is a undrilled portion of the beta nord field so we will have some activity for sure
1: yeah i mean expansion in the Jean d'Arc basin is the future so we don't know how many more projects new projects or new fields will come to pass in the future but the possibility out there beta nor jeanne D'Arc basin is just undeniable uh anything else we want to talk about this morning while we have you rob
14: not really, no, no. Dave was asking about these two things, but uh, no, just that the world is the world, you know. Which I, I have on my screen in front of my computer something that you know says Petrobras, the, the Brazilian oil company, to invest 102 billion dollars in exploration and production as it steps up. West Africa, East Africa, uh, new oil field in Norway. So we're. You know, the world hasn't given up on on fossil fuel production, for sure.
1: No, I mean, just look at all the money being spent and mergers taking place in the oil sands in Alberta. It's extraordinary.
14: And I just came back from Guyana again, uh, Patty, and, and boy, they're just yesterday or last week just hooked up their third FPSO and have four more on order. That's, that's in an area where they discover, discovered oil in 2015, produced it by 2020. By 2024, we'll have three producing FPSOs, each producing 200,000 barrels a day, and shooting for seven in total with a total production of a billion, a 1,200,000 uh, 1, barrels a day by 2017. So there you go. It, there's lots going on in the world yet in the oil and gas business.
1: Where was Brent this morning? 80 bucks?
14: Uh, I'm looking at Brent was $80.30
1: Okay And of course, just a reminder When it comes to the provincial treasury The forecast for this fiscal year Which ends March 31st Is at 86 bucks And that's at 75, 75 uh, The conversion rate between the Canadian and the American greenback Yeah, yeah, yeah
14: So uh, we're not getting rich But we're, we're still okay for a while yet Yeah,
1: and every dollar change <laughs> equals about 27 million dollars
14: Natural gas is the is the one of, that that stumps me. I mean, you're talking three three dollars and fifty cents a thousand cubic feet at what we call the Henry Hub, which is the North American standard for gas. I mean, natural gas has not has not followed the same path as oil, and I don't know why, because natural gas is is a, a viable source of energy as well. So. Uh, Thank God we haven't got any gas out there. We got oil. So there
1: you go. Yeah, it's a little bit uh, more difficult to manipulate gas than it is oil. But yeah, yeah I mean, and you mentioned Qatar and their partnership with Exxon. That's got to be more than oil. They've got to have some sort of gas play in mind. And I know the break-even number is probably well in excess of $3.35 an MMBTU, but with the trillions of cubic feet out there, some of which going to be uh, very difficult to get when we talk about off the coast of Labrador specifically, but there's big money and big uh, gas reserves out there.
14: Yeah, the province in the last budget announced, I think, $5 million to do a good evaluation of what gas, how much gas was out there. And I don't know if they've actually awarded that contract yet, but it'll be interesting. People talk about up to 7000000000000 $7 TCF of gas. And to put that in its context... When Sable Island was was, was being hyped and and actually in production, they were talking about a total of three TCF of gas. So seven TCF of gas is a lot of gas. It's It's primarily associated gas, but there may be some standalone gas. But if you combine the two, I've always argued, Patty, that we should take the gas out of the reservoir and put carbon back down into it. I mean, the whole world's talking about carbon capture and storage and utilization and so on. And Canada's looking for spaces to, uh, to store their carbon. And so why not use, it, why not use the John Derrick Basin, which, which has got lots of capacity, and take the oil out of the reservoir and put, ga- put, put carbon back down?
1: Well, and of course, the province just brought forward $6 million to examine exactly that possibility yeah. in our offshore. Very different than what they're doing off the west coast of Canada. The research they're doing on carbon storage there is not in depleted wells, it's actually they're injecting it into the basalt rock. And over the course yeah. of some 25 years, the carbon actually turns into rock.
14: Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's up in northern BC as yeah. well, as, as well as northern Alberta. And remember, BC is also now embarking on their second or their third LNG facility. I mean, Shell is spending, I think it's Shell, Shell is spending $40 billion at Kitty Mac in a in a liquefied natural gas facility to take gas, liquefy it and ship it to Asia. Because the market in Asia is very strong for gas. And now there's a second, maybe even a third. So uh, gas, gas gas, is still play, you know, a big player in the Canadian in the can- Canadian oil and gas industry and economies, for sure.
1: No doubt about it, Rob. Always appreciate it and enjoy the conversation.
14: Okay, Patty. Take care.
1: You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. It's Rob Strong with uh, some oil and gas-related conversations and talking about initially the passing of George Cohen, who was the founder of McDonald's Canada, dead at 86, brought McDonald's, the Big Mac, to Russia. Interesting. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away welcome back to the program let's go to line number three say good morning to the general manager at the community food sharing association that's tina bishop good morning tina you're on the air
15: good morning patty how are you
1: i'm doing fine thanks how about you
15: i'm doing doing wonderful thank you
1: i'm glad to hear it before we dig in uh, uh tomorrow's giving tuesday anything planned
15: um, well, we're hoping to, that our online donations uh, will, you know, see an increase uh, for tomorrow. Tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, uh, certainly, um, you know, very, uh, very important time of year for the Community Food Sharing Association uh, with the Christmas season coming up on us pretty quickly. Uh, and it's those donations that help us make it through the season to be able to help uh, those in need throughout the province.
1: How many food banks do you folks service?
15: Right now we have 60 food banks in our membership right across the province and into Labrador.
1: Have you had the opportunity or the possibility to, you know, improve or to change a relationship with some of the big distributors and retailers? Because the way you were able to stretch a dollar three years ago is not the same today.
15: Well, it's certainly not the same today. Um, You know, a few years ago, uh, basically every $10 donation, we would be able to source, uh, purchase, and distribute up to $430 worth of food. Uh, That same $10 donation today allows us to be able to source, purchase, and distribute up to $205 worth of food. So it is certainly a significant uh, decrease in the the buying power that we have, although we do have a Wonderful relationship with some of the uh, uh, some of the larger uh, um, grocery chains and things like that in the province. So,
1: just describe exactly how you're able to stretch that dollar, because some people can't wrap their minds around that math.
15: Well, uh, you know, we're able to do that uh, based on the generosity of um, the grocery stores and donors in the province. Uh, they donate the food, and um, our shipping costs are lower than what. Uh, what others would pay. So we have shipping companies come on to help us, such as Day and Ross. They're a great supporter. Um, they deliver product throughout the province for us and uh, always give us a great rate on the shipping. So we're able to stretch those dollars more than someone, um, you know, just going to the grocery store would be able to do
1: it's amazing to be able to do that and you know sometimes it feels like we're talking about the patently obvious and we talked about the food bank report from the, the national entity and talked about a 12% uptick in the number of people using food banks and the changing demographics and the people who were once donors are now patrons just you know paint us a picture of exactly what you hear uh, from your 60
9: members
15: Well, what we're hearing right across the province is, you know, all of the food banks are seeing significant increases this year. Um, I know the hunger count report from March uh, showed a 12% increase in usage. Um, That's from last year. But if we look at it overall from 2019, it's actually a 44.1% increase. Uh, I suspect that's going to actually go higher this morning. I spoke to one of the representatives from one of the food banks here in the city this morning, Um, they actually dropped off some of their Christmas registration, hamper registrations for us. And um, they're actually seeing a 50% increase in Christmas hamper registrations over last year.
1: Yeah, and I heard an interview with Courtney Barber at uh, Neighbours in Need on Facebook, and the number of people, new applicants for a little bit of help leading into the holiday season
9: is heartbreaking.
15: It, it certainly is, Patty, and, uh, you know, we're, we're doing our best here at the association to be able to meet the needs of all those uh, that require assistance in the province. Um, you know, we're supplying food to the food banks. Um, we're, we're asking people, um, you know, if you're able to, to donate to your local food banks it's very very important um, to you know, so we can actually help meet the needs of those in the province this year.
1: You know, when you break it down for age demographics, children make up a third of the people coming through the door at food banks. Yet the children only make up twenty percent of the population of Newfoundland and Labrador.
15: Absolutely, Patty, and that's the scary part. Um, you know, there's so many children in the in the province now doing without. Um, and and over the Christmas holidays, you know, when the schools are closed, uh, the breakfast programs are not operating, the, sk- the lunch programs are not operating, then um, it makes it a lot more difficult for the families to be able to supply food to cover those meals for children as those meals would normally be covered through the schools. Um, so we expect, you know, we're going to need um a bigger help to be able to meet the needs there as well
1: yeah and you know in the most recent poverty reduction announcement talking about school lunch expansion which is absolutely a good thing but when you think about it out loud to have to rely on going to school for an opportunity to get a bite to eat is also quite sad i'm glad we're doing it and for all the right reasons and we're the only developed nation in the world that doesn't have a national school lunch program so it's yes. good that we're expanding it here in the province uh, tina you and your team do great work and i appreciate your time this morning
15: Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Bishops, Bishop, General Manager at the Community Food Sharing Association. Amazing times. All right. Good show today. A big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.